Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists, where I have casual, unedited, long-format conversations with scientists whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and I started this podcast because I love working with scientists. They're some of my favorite people, and ultimately I feel like science only happens because people get up in the morning they take a shower, they get their clothes on, they get to work, and they do it. That's the only reason that science happens, is because people are driving it forward. And I wanted to celebrate some of these fine individuals by letting them uh, share relaxed, casual conversations about their lives and work. This week, I talked with Dr. Caroline Holmes. Caroline is a polar climate scientist. She works at the British Antarctic Survey as well. In fact, her office is just right down the corridor from mine, uh, but we had never really talked that much before, so I was really glad to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with Caroline Holmes to get a, an a idea of her background and what she's working on right now. So she has a background in atmospheric science. She's done some policy-relevant work as well, and now she's working on sea ice, so she's had a very uh, a nice kind of varied career in terms of the types of work that she's done and it was really a pleasant chat uh we uh, we had a really nice time and i appreciate i appreciated her stopping by it's hot it's hot this week um as i'm recording this uh the high temperature today is going to go up to what's forecast anyway to go up to 29 celsius and that's uh for those of you working in the fahrenheit system that's about 84 degrees fahrenheit and that might not sound that hot uh, but when you're in a country that basically doesn't have air conditioning, I mean, you can find it in some places, but it's not common. Uh, you, know, you can't find air conditioning, and in addition to that, none of the buildings are designed to uh, for these kind of temperatures. They're all designed to keep heat trapped in them, so they just kind of get warmer and warmer during the day. So it's uh, hard to get away from it. You know, the low 80s, um, I mean, I grew up in a much hotter place in terms of the temperatures, but in that uh, hotter, more humid place in the southeast U.S., um, you could kind of get away from it because of the uh, air conditioning everywhere. I guess um, for those of you familiar with the show, sometimes I ramble a little bit in the introductions, and that's what I'm going to do now. So feel free to skip ahead if you don't want to hear me ramble on. I won't be offended in the slightest. Um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, it's hot, hot, hot. Um, so I was just looking at this, uh, USA Today study where they, it's not a study. It was not a study. I don't know why I called it a study. I'm so used to thinking in terms of articles and studies, I guess is why I, I called it that. Uh, USA Today article from June 29th, that a city in Oman may have just recorded the hottest night ever recorded on earth so far, uh, back in terms of when records started, where the low temperature was 108.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And for those of you in the Celsius system, that's 42.6 degrees Celsius, which is insane as a nighttime temperature. Now, that's just one temperature measurement, one temperature record being broken. So that particular measurement all by itself wouldn't necessarily be an indication of climate change because climate change is something you need to detect by looking at the statistics, the trends, right? We know that. And if you look at those trends, let's say, for example, in ocean heat content or in the constant breaking of high temperature records all over the planet at different times of year, then the uh, results are very, very clear. Uh, the planet's warming up. It's unequivocal to steal a phrase from the IPCC report. And it's very clear that um, 
human-driven burning of fossil fuel is uh, absolutely a big factor in driving that, very important factor, and uh, one of the dominant factors in changing the climate right now. I'm recording this intro at home, so uh, I've got the fan on. It's way too hot to not have the fan on, so if you have detected a little whirring in the background, it's just a fan. It's too, not, too hot to not have the fan on, and I'm happy to sacrifice a little bit of audio quality in the interest of not overheating. Okay, well, I think let's just get on with it. Let's get into the conversation because um, I don't think I want to ramble on anymore. Um, oh, yep, let me give you the details for Caroline Holmes. You can find Caroline, Dr. Caroline Holmes, at C. Holmes Climate. That's Holmes like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so H-O-L-M-E-S. As you know, you can see her name on the episode, so I don't actually need to tell you how to spell her name. I always forget that for some reason. I don't know why I forget that. Uh, so yeah, find her on Twitter, find her profile at Bass, and uh, yeah, let's jump into it. Oh yeah, the, the website thing I mentioned, I did get that up. It's uh, danjonesocean.com. Um, so thanks to Chris Lauder for helping me find the template for that and for getting that stuff set up. So I'm going to give it a try. We'll see uh, what it does. It's just part of my interest in putting stuff out there in the world. Let's just make stuff and put it out and see what happens with it. That's part of what I've done with this podcast. Uh, yeah, so check that out if you want. Oh, for new episodes of Climate Scientists, it's uh, at Climate Sci Pod on Twitter. You can follow us there. Uh, we're also, as you probably know, on a bunch of different platforms. So thanks for downloading and uh, or streaming or however you are listening to this. Um, yeah, it looks like we're on Spotify now, so that's nice. We're uh, also on Radio Public, Podbean, and a whole bunch of other outlets. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, of course. Uh, Google Play, uh, many different outlets via Anchor. So you can subscribe or listen on any one of those platforms if you like. There are lots of options. Okay, let's go ahead. Dr. Caroline Holmes, enjoy. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do. Here we go. Hello. Morning. Come in. How are you? All right. How are you? Good, thanks. <laughs> that's the setup. Nice. <laughs> little spherical microphones, yeah. they kind of look a little bit alien. They're quite fun. A little bit, yeah, they totally are. Got little, you don't really need the windscreens because it's not like, we don't tend to talk you know, directly into them, oh, but okay. it's kind of nice to have them just in case, I don't know, there's some wind or something yeah, that right. blows through. Um, I've got the windows open, you know, just yeah, to keep it. it's pretty hot. It is pretty <laughs> hot, yeah. And this room, I don't know how yours is on the other side of the corridor there, but this room, it's really good at trapping heat, which is great in the winter, you know, because you get the sunlight in the morning. Yeah. And it kind of stays in here, so it can get quite toasty, you know, when yeah. you first walk in. Yeah, it's just quite stuffy. Different yeah. Different time of day, but yeah. Stuffy. Yeah, so I think, um, hopefully it's a reasonable... So. Oh, no, I'm not too worried about that. It's okay. It does show up on the recordings, but honestly... Um, that way lies madness. I think if I if I worry too much yeah. about trying to get the sound perfect, then I'll just yeah, yeah I'll just drive myself crazy. So I would rather just you know have it go how it goes, and as long as it is reasonably like listenable and it yeah. doesn't have a lot of uh, you know very strange you know bumps and crashes and scratches and stuff, then I think that's all totally fine. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. So this is. Um, this setup where it's uh, so Steph got these for me. She was nice enough to 
uh, okay. gift me these microphones. It was like nice. a Christmas present. Sweet. And it was her kind of way to say like, yeah, just go ahead, get just do it, just try it. Yeah, yeah, just give this a shot and see how it goes. And um, so we uh, did. We just went ahead and started, and uh, it's been fun. I don't know. It's been nice to do and. Um, you know, we seem to have a little audience, and when I say we, I mean like me and my guests. I'm yeah. not, I'm not using the royal we as <laughs> bizarre, arrogant thing. Yeah, I'm just yeah, saying me on. and my guests. This, yeah, because this kind of how I think of the show is like it's not just me. You know, I'm getting people together and we're talking, so we're making these episodes. You know, together. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's we're constructing something together. So when I say we, that's what I mean. And uh, yeah, there seems to be an audience for it, and people seem to be listening to it Yay. and liking it. And you know, I ran into folks at various institutes here and there who will say they've been enjoying oh, it. So wow. yeah, so that's kind of the audience I think is like your colleagues and might be some students in there. Yeah. Might be some uh, general science enthusiasts in there and okay. people who are like aspiring. And I guess the way that I usually do it is I kind of just imagine that there's an undergrad like in the room. Okay, yeah, That's yeah. kind of how I picture it. And so that, that helps keep me kind of grounded in a sense of, okay, I know what level I need to be yeah, uh, okay. speaking at. You know, you can. But it doesn't sure need to be full on like, you know, your standard outreach. Like, imagine people have never heard of stuff. So you, you know, do a bit more. Right. Because actually that can even get weirdly formal too, isn't it? If you, yeah. if you start to feel like, oh, I have to frame, I have to say everything. I have, yeah. to, I have to step... That start from the very very beginning yeah then um it doesn't have to be formal but it, it can because you can get very in your head about uh, oh i need to really step back and give the broadest yeah. possible and i can't talk about eddie viscosity or something yeah. like that you could hear if you wanted to okay but it's uh it's not just a science podcast right it's also we can talk about really whatever comes up okay it's pretty free form yeah. and pretty open right. um I didn't do a lot of research because that's, I've tried it both ways. I've tried like doing a bunch of research and writing down questions beforehand. And I've tried just having the person tell me about what they're doing and what they're up to. And it's kind of been better, I think, to prepare less. Okay. All right. Because I think if I prepare more, then that formalizes it a little bit. And I have questions and they're kind of sitting there looking at me like, well, what is the next question? I am prepared to answer the next thing. Yeah. yeah, And I guess to feel more like uh just more kind of public engagement style yeah, which is okay. it's fine there's nothing wrong with that it's just kind of different so but thanks for doing this no worries yeah no it's quite fun i'm glad you're here yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> how long have you been at bass now uh so i started last january so yeah. 18 months pretty much right on yeah so do you feel settled in uh <laughs> I would yeah, imagine. yeah just about so it's difficult because i'm you know half in atmospheres and half in oceans yeah so like everything in the way takes that much longer mm. Uh, but yeah, I think so. I kind of feel, I feel grounded now. I once heard somebody say that it takes two years every time you move to like adjust and maybe that's later in a career, but there's some truth in it. Like it takes a while. Yeah, it does. And so I've been through that moving cycle a a lot and I imagine, you know, you've done at least one, probably more than one, probably several, you know. So I did PhD, then a short postdoc in Edinburgh and then I came here. Okay. Yeah. So you've been through that cycle of moving and maybe you moved earlier in your life too. I don't know, you know, but. I moved later growing up. You know, my yeah. dad's in the church. Did you? <laughs> so I yeah. moved every five years. Oh, five years. Oh, wow. Okay. I want to talk about that. So that means you're really familiar with this kind of transient lifestyle yeah. of, you know, you just start to put down roots and you just start to um, get a sense of community and then it's time to go. Yeah. Which is something I can sympathize with uh, a lot. <laughs> so I really would, I would really like to talk about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, just to give you kind of a 
my perspective on it and you can feel free to you know chime in and yeah. tell me what your experience has been like so um, back in uh, 2003 I got married and my wife and I hopped around every two years we moved yeah. until 2013 so there was a full-on decade yeah. of just every two years we were moving cities states and then country yeah and then you know continent also <laughs> um, yeah. and I got very familiar with that cycle of usually we'd show up at the new place and we'd be excited yeah. You know, it's Colorado, it's Atlanta, it's here, and there's a good, I don't know, four, five, six months of just everything's new, everything's yeah. fresh, and you're looking around going like, this is cool, this is, this is I'm liking this place. And, and then usually the first winter, so our, our moving cycles have very much been tied to that academic calendar mm -hmm. of kind of starting in August, September, and then, you know, uh, yeah. so usually by the first winter, I really start to miss the old place, the place yeah. I just moved from okay. I started to like feel get really sad about oh, I miss seeing the mountains or I miss you know really good barbecue or whatever yeah and it, that, that's oversimplifying a bit but you know you can get this this sad melancholy feeling of like oh, I miss that place I want to I want to I, I had friends there and I had a life that I understood and a life that I navigated yeah. there and then you have to say goodbye to that and you have to you know move on and somehow adjust to the new place and then, you know, that passes at some point and you start settling into the new place and really feeling like, okay, yeah, I get this. I could feel at home here. Um, yeah. And uh, so far, uh, uh, usually that's about when we have to move is when I really <laughs> start feeling like, okay, this is good. Yeah. I can get a sense of how to live here. Um, luckily, we've been able to stay here in Cambridge a bit longer than average. We finally broke in that two-year okay. cycle. So that's been... So how long have you been here for? Five years okay. now. That's yes. been very nice. I feel very thankful for that. Yeah. Um, but what's funny is I still can't shake that feeling of, okay, what's next? Like, yeah. what's, where do I have to go next? And I'm not necessarily looking to move. I mean, you know, we, we all, I think, keep our eyes open for what yeah. kind of things might be out there, but I'm not necessarily looking to move. But it just starts to emotionally, I feel that tug of, uh, it's almost, you know, you might have to go somewhere else. Just that yeah. kind of impermanence and that kind of uh, transient nature of uh, you know em employment and where you can live, um, but I'm talking about myself way too much. I want to hear yeah, about no, it's your. Fine. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess like for me, the the transient thing is interesting because growing up, obviously, because I moved a lot. So as I said, every five years, I moved when I was six, and again when I was eight, again mm. when I was thirteen. My parents moved again when I went to university. Wow. So actually, you know, when I was in academia, I was like, you know, this doesn't bother me. I'm fine. And I, and <laughs> You're I used didn't, to it. I didn't think it was going to phase me at all. And um, my first job I took at the end of my PhD was up in Edinburgh. So I was mm -hmm. leaving, you know, six hours. And I went up there with, with my husband. Um, and I really, it really hit me. I found it really hard. Mm. And I didn't expect to. Yeah. Because I was like, you know, I'm just used to moving. And actually, I was really struggling. And I just went, the university provides a free counselling service. So just if you're worried, like, you can just yeah. go and have a chat. And, you know, yeah, yeah. it doesn't have to be a major thing. Those are good. And, uh, and he was just like, oh, you know, you've just, you know, you've got married. You're still writing up your PhD. Because I was doing that horrible PhD postdoc <laughs> at the same time thing. Oh, no. Um, and, you know, he's like, you've just uprooted. And, and this is a big thing. And actually, I hadn't thought of it as a big thing. Because I thought, you know, Edinburgh's close, actually, to Reading. You mm -hmm. know, people move from America to you know, move all over the world and you know from from Australia to Edinburgh yeah. and I thought this isn't a big deal I can go for the weekend um, but actually it was, it was really tough and you know I was fine um, it's but still it far did, enough away. I hadn't quite adjusted I hadn't quite realized how how hard it would actually be to be you know not have the framework and because I was doing the whole 
writing up my PhD in my spare time, I couldn't really put roots down. So mm-hmm. I didn't really, and I did eventually, and then moved, yeah. as you do. So after about a year, a year, I'd really kind of started to put roots down, and then I got a new job back in Cambridge. But Those, um, those counselling services are so important. I took advantage of one uh, out at Colorado State a lot, which is where I did my, my yeah. PhD, and they had a really good one. And um, I think it's, it's important, it's a great resource to have, and it's you know usually... Uh, if you're at that institute, you don't usually have to pay for it, so exactly. that's important, and yeah. it, it makes it. You know, it's so helpful to have that neutral party yeah. who's who's not directly invested in your life, but you could just use them as a kind of sounding board. And yeah. I don't know what your experience is like, but I sometimes don't even need that other person to provide much input. I just like just let me throw this out there and verbalize yeah. it and put it into words. Yeah, and it's uh, and and then. I'll be able to work through a lot just by the fact that there's another person that I can talk to yeah. who doesn't even necessarily need to, you know, give me an answer or a solution or something. I just exactly. need to say it out loud. Yeah. So that's awesome. I'm glad they had it up there at Edinburgh as well. Yeah, that's really good. And in some ways it kind of normalizes as well because it, it, it's not a big deal. It's just something, you know, that you can go and do and it's not, yeah, it kind of normalizes this, yeah. this thing and actually you realize that what's going on so yeah it's, it's, sure. really it's part of how yeah. human beings work you know, yeah. I mean, human beings need to talk to other human beings yeah. to process and information yes yeah, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so it just it's logical to have that in place yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's great yeah so. oh, that's good yeah so you were doing your writing up your phd and doing a postdoc at yeah. the same time in edinburgh yeah and settling in like you said and that's yeah. a big deal you how long had you been where, where were you before i'm sorry so i was at reading you were at reading so i was an atmospheric Sciences very much, so I I was at Reading, so I did my PhD there. Yeah. Uh, and then I moved to Edinburgh, and I was doing something quite different in Edinburgh as well. So I was mm. doing much more kind of climate impact stuff. Oh really? Okay. So um, I it was government funded. So they were, um, they have an organisation called Climate Exchange that are interested in knowing how climate change is going to affect Scotland essentially. So oh, okay. I was kind of funded as a postdoc, but to provide that input and to have some kind of liaison mm. with with policy. So what was your job? You had, I guess you. You knew the scientific literature, or at least you knew how to engage with it. You knew yeah. how to access it and how to look for things. And would they give you really specific policy questions to address, or how does that work? So, I mean, I think that was part of the idea of, of how the organisation was set up, but actually it had ended up being a bit different. So some of the things I did were... So one of the first things I did was actually um, write summaries of the summary for policymakers. So in the yeah. big APICC <laughs> um, yeah. climate change assessments... Um, and sorry to all those people who write them, but um, you know these these policymakers said this isn't a summary and it's not for policymakers because they are you know the the original document is is thousands of pages enormous long. yeah and I, the summary for policymakers is is thirty pages long and actually that's for a policymaker who needs a quick overview that's hard so that's I was employed to do a two pager they don't have like staff who would read it for them um, I mean they, they would just, but I know? guess they wanted like a quick you know a quick reference um, and so I a one of my first jobs was to write a two page summary of the summaries um, mm. and for all three of the working groups in the climate change assessment so not just the physical science but the kind of the mitigation and emissions stuff as well mm. and the adaptation and how how people are adapting to climate change so that was really fun because mm. I had to read a lot of mm. the IPCC stuff and then they're like can um, you put this in a tweet yeah, <laughs> yeah. One tweet. no thankfully it didn't hear that hard um, <laughs> and uh, anyway there were some loads of really cool experts in Scotland who checked that when I condensed the summary even further I was still not you know mm. distorting it so um so that was quite fun and then some of the other stuff was actually kind of commissioned science commissioned um, science yeah so and that was kind of more informal but so they, one of the things we looked at was um kind of changes in extreme warm temperatures and and how that and actually in Scotland you might think 
um, you won't get that many because even if it gets quite a lot hotter, mm. it's still not that hot in Scotland. But you know, it's been it's been really warm this week. I think it's over thirty at the moment in parts of Scotland. Yeah, um, and you, I mean, I don't know, but you would imagine nothing's really been built for that. No, you know, the buildings have not been built exactly. for those kind of temperatures. You know, and so even if it doesn't feel that hot outside, you know, the buildings can trap quite a lot of heat. Exactly. <laughs> so you, you really notice, you know, if you go to a... So I was in Switzerland last week and you really notice that the heating is still on on some of the trains mm. and the, the hotel rooms are really warm because they're designed for the skiing season to keep yeah. people warm. They're not designed for the hot summer to keep mm-hmm. people cool. And so, you know, there's all this stuff about how heating and cooling demand, which is one of the things I was doing. Heating and cooling demand changes as climate changes. Um, but actually, that's... You know, actually, that depends on what infrastructure you have in place because yeah. it might be that okay, we think more, more people want to cool their homes, but are we going to build the homes that people can actually cool? Um, hmm. And you know, people people will heat their homes less, probably. But there's there's all these kind of how human behaviours change as well as just you know how the temperature changes and then people oh just gosh. respond in the same way. It's so. pretty complicated, yeah. There's yeah. whole layers and layers of uh, things to think about there. Um, yeah, and I noticed that in Germany too, like the building, I talked about it before on a previous episode, but you know, it was really hot that week, you know, uh, uh, up above 30 and we were on the, in Bremerhaven, so kind of, you know, on the North Sea more oh, or less, yeah. and none of the buildings yeah. were designed for that, so it just, it, you know, they were like little ovens, they just, <laughs> yeah. you felt like you were baking inside, uh, you know, some of these structures that were kind of thrown up after World War II, I guess, yeah. and at least that's what they looked like. And, yeah. Yeah. So commission science, I guess, means that the was it the government that said we want you to look into you this science organization. You know, was it the university you were working? So with? so I worked for Edinburgh University, but right. climate exchange were kind of the intermediary. So actually, what would really happen was um, you know there'd be a discussion between some government policymakers and the people at climate exchange who were this government commissioned organization. Yeah. Um, and then they would come and say, well, you know this is the kind of thing so it, it wasn't kind of direct commissioning process but it would be you know i know that the government are interested in this you know what can you look into oh, so that's interesting so um, climate exchange they're kind of a middle person between government and scientists is that so, it's sort of I what i think it so i'm like, trying to make know. sure i get this right but because yeah. um, i'm trying to remember exactly what they were but so they oh it's a center of expertise so they have these centers of knowledge exchange and expertise so they had one for animal health because that's huge in scotland um hmm. you know agriculture such okay, a huge yeah, so they yeah. had one for animal health they had one for climate change um, I can't remember what the other ones were. They kind of all operate in slightly different ways, um, but yeah, they kind of provide kind of provide that knowledge base. And so there were other people working on more specific questions and kind of particularly working on kind of building an infrastructure and things. So I was kind of specifically working on climate information. Yeah, there were a number of postdocs doing different kind of things. It sounds super helpful because you know, as a scientist, you don't necessarily have a great handle on. Know, what are folks in government doing right yeah. now? It's just a totally different world. You may or may not know anybody in that world. Um, you know, I, I don't know anybody directly. Um, so you really need that kind of translator in the middle yeah. to you know go between government and uh, what scientists are up to. Yeah. Because you know our interests might carry us in a very different direction than what like a policymaker. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like exactly. viscosity. And you can re- yeah, exactly. You can very easily kind of go off and be like, well, this is a really interesting question. Mm. And then and actually it's relating that back and, and making sure it gets heard as well. So, um, yeah. yeah um, so the, you were in Reading and I was thinking maybe we could go all the way back. Where did you, yeah. where did you grow up? So I was uh, born... All over. You know, yeah, you said, yeah. You know, uh, so, um, yeah, I was born in Ely, actually, which is oh, okay. just down the road from here. Yeah. So um, at the close. A10. Uh, and then I actually moved to Cambridge when I was six. 
Mm. Um, so my dad was training for his career in ministry, so we went there. Um, and then we moved to South Yorkshire, and then we moved to Exeter, and and then by the end of that, I, I went off to university, back to Cambridge again. Right. So I've kind of gone full circle in a way. Actually, it's quite funny. And then um, yeah, you keep coming back. Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, Cambridge. Cambridge draws me weirdly and it's yeah. you know it's quite funny because you know everyone who lives here says it's so flat and then um, bizarre hmm. you know we, we, we're all craving mountains it's funny whenever anyone from Basque is anywhere with mountains but actually I, I realised when I came back that um, it's probably not any surprise that I ended up as an atmospheric scientist which is kind of what I was I'm, I'm the sea ice now but you know I'm kind of an atmospheric scientist at heart hmm. and um yeah, the skies are huge, and you and you notice actually when you go to the mountains and you can see half as much sky as, <laughs> as you can here, and you it's kind of not surprising. I think that I ended up being obsessed with, you know, clouds and how the yeah. atmosphere works because because there's just so much of it. That's a really so, good um, point because uh, I hadn't kind of heard that counterpoint, but it makes so much sense that, you know, yes, it's flat, but that means you can see the clouds, you can see the yeah. you can see weather systems, you know, developing far away. Yeah. Um, you get a lot of that in like eastern Colorado and in Kansas, yeah, because you know, it's really flat there, and even and more exciting weather as well. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, the, more to see coming from a distance. The energy, yeah, the atmosphere flames. packs a, a wallop over yeah. there. You get tornadoes and so, you get uh, really exciting, exciting convective thunderstorms and uh, yeah, yeah. But so I, I went to an atmospheric science department. That was my PhD department. Oh, yeah, okay. So um, I, I like that you said you're an atmospheric scientist at heart. And even though my my advisor was very much an oceanographer, and that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. Uh, it was nice to be kind of surrounded by that. That was the culture I was surrounded by. Was you yeah. know atmospheric science and meteorology. There were weather charts, you know, up on yes. the wall. Yeah. Uh, and there were people talking about uh, you know. They do a lot of um, tropical meteorology oh, yeah. at uh, Colorado State, and that's what they have kind of a long history of. So I feel like I um, soaked up a lot of that vocabulary. Yeah. You know, and I, I kind of, even though that's not my research area, um, you know, I, I feel like I know the language. And yeah. I, so if you were to start spouting a lot of atmospheric science stuff, yeah. I might not have a lot to contribute, but I would go, <laughs> I, I know those words. Yeah, I've heard this before. <laughs> I'm yeah. Familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. There uh, was a. Sorry, real, real quick. Yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, it seems to be. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, we had um, rescheduled things. Yeah, okay. And uh, I think there were some crossed wires there in terms of it was just miscommunicated. Yeah. yeah. I'm really sorry. Sorry it's to break, right. the, right. break the flow like that. Um, yeah, so this... Okay, atmospheric science stuff. Yeah, so you grew up all over. Cambridgeshire keeps pulling you back. Yeah. Um, you can see the weather. <laughs> see you can the see the sky. You can see yeah. the, the cloud. You can see um, the... Uh, yeah, I guess I think you would like Colorado for that reason. Like, if you yeah, could hang I out in Colorado, you could see. Uh, yeah, I think it's a back plan. <laughs> One day I need to go to Colorado. It's a good place for a field, right? It's got Boulder and it's got, you know, NCAR and it's yeah. got. Uh, sorry, it's in Boulder they've got, you know, NCAR and the university, like uh, UC Boulder and yeah. then Colorado State is up the road at Fort Collins. So somehow that's a little kind of super center that's for stuff. for our, our field. So um, I need to at least visit at some point. Yeah, for sure. It's on the you list. Can, you can actually see uh, Kelvin Helmholtz waves sometimes. Oh, yeah, cool, know, yeah. Off of the mountains there. Yeah. <laughs> Just downstream in the mountains, you can see the little, uh, you know, almost cartoonish-looking 
you know, wave structures yeah. in the clouds. So that's really cool. So our table you names know. at our wedding were all cloud types. But somebody said that I had to have clear sky as our as the top table because really? they were like, you know, you have to have clear sky as a top table because you know you're looking forward. And I was like, no, I want Kelvin Helmholtz waves. <laughs> so uh, somebody else got these. Yeah, and as you say, these 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 very characteristic. They really look like they've got these tips, and they they look like how you draw a cartoon wave. Yeah. But um, I can't remember who got them in the end. But I was quite sad that somebody talked me into them not being top table because oh. you know they don't they don't cause any harm. So. <laughs> that was your wedding. Oh, yeah, man. I know. Yeah. So but, uh, what, what were the other cloud types? Did you have, you know, cumulus and... I can't, uh, I can't remember the details to be honest. Yeah. I think I tried to go for picturesque ones. Oh, okay. But, um, this yeah. is the mammatist table. Yeah, this I think we probably, this. I think we might have had mammatist because we were yeah. like, you know, it's a good name. <laughs> so yeah. these are, yeah, so these are the big ones that they, they're named after Latin for others. So, you know, they, yeah. they're these very, again, picturesque. I think I saw something the other morning, actually, but I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw something that looked if it was about to be a mammatist a couple of Saturday mornings ago. Oh. You know, these very clean underside to the clouds mm. that look like they're kind of hanging down, but then they, they cleared off again. So, mm. and then um, the weather didn't suggest that it was that kind of cloud. You normally get them in kind of thunderstorm downdrafts. So, you know. Mm. maybe it wasn't but it definitely it was definitely a really cool sky it was one of those ones where you go I'm glad I got up early because everyone who got up an hour later isn't seeing this sky nice. so, uh, so yeah it was a good one and uh, I've seen a sundog every now and then I don't think I've actually spotted one. Oh yeah just um, a little bit so... of rainbow in the you know in the sky just yeah. a little bit of like a tiny bit of a rainbow you know kind of out yeah. of place uh, well not out of place I don't know why I said out of place but you know yeah. just uh, out by itself I not guess, what you'd expect I from a standard you know, again, cartoon picture rainbow is just it's the colours, yeah. Yeah. Slender. No, I don't think I've ever seen one, apart from in pictures in the keen weather chat on mm. the Friday lunchtime at Reading, so they have this weather discussion, and so uh, all the full-on weather keen, keen mm. enthusiasts uh, kind of come and have pictures from their garden and kind of discuss some of the features, and, you know, if something rare happens, then... Mm people chat the atmospheric conditions that led to it so it's really cool it's you know that it's a proper place where people's work is really overlapping with you know just their nerdy interests so so it's really fun nice that um, sounds good yeah. yeah are there folks who think about hurricanes there and follow hurricane tracks and yeah and yeah so there's not at reading yeah there's a few people working on it. i wouldn't say a huge group but yeah you normally get kind of someone doing a post postseason mm. hurricane report kind of thing and you know that that's why if i was interested in anything when i was growing up that was weather related it was it was tropical storms and that's what i wanted to do mm. for my phd and then ended up doing something different and i'm now in the polar regions so you know <laughs> don't know how that happened but yeah, um, sea ice. yeah because yeah, uh you know there's, there's these such energetic systems hurricanes and, and they have huge impacts on very real impacts on kind of human livelihoods and so that's again the reason i, I was really interested in in climate science that it brings together really interesting science and, and impacts on on people's livelihoods and that's my mum's really you know into justice and hmm. i grew up kind of very much in a kind of a social justice household so oh yeah i kind of was like oh this you know weather and climate brings these things together um and you know it's, it's for the polar regions that's still very much true but it's it's less obvious that you know you've got a hurricane and there's people um oh, right, so yeah, yeah. so but i mean the links are still very strong it's just you know slightly less yeah. immediately local because um, the yeah because the you know amount of landed ice can change the sea level yeah. a lot and then and that affects the impact of things like hurricanes as well as well as just kind of the, the main state yeah so, that's right yeah, yeah. I, so I could imagine that i mean i don't i'm not familiar with the if there's evidence around suggesting you know a connection between sea level and hurricane strength but you know i, I it could be plausible or i don't know if anybody's looked at that i think so for hurricane sunday i a bit off my thunder. So uh, there's a great book on Hurricane Sandy. Don't know if you read it. You should. Um, mm. By a guy called Adam Sowell, and it's all about. He writes it really nicely. So he alternates his chapters. 
between, um, you know, uh, what was happening on the day. So he has the hurricane report of the forecast, you know, so mm. many days ahead. And then he has a chapter on filling you in on the science that's really important for that. So he'll say, you know, this is forecasting a hurricane. Now let me tell you what a hurricane is. Mm. And then he'll say, let me tell you how they were getting the observations. So it's really nicely balanced. Yeah, that he's telling a story while telling you the science. Oh, I like that and, idea. Um, so it's kind of woven in yeah. you know, together. So it's yeah. really nicely done. And how he, you know, he t- gets on to how the response was developing. But I think he talks there about the fact that, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a storm surge of three feet, but then your sea level has risen locally by six inches or something, then that storm surge is going to get six inches higher. So actually, it's adding on those subtle... So it's not so much that sea level affects a hurricane, but right. the sea level really affects a storm surge. Right, so it affects um, the impact of the yeah, hurricane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I can't, yeah, I can't remember the numbers, but um, he talks about kind of these things. Because there was all this work to see how hurricane sanding had been affected by climate change and actually the the sea level thing is is one of the most obvious mm-hmm. obvious links that you know if you're just your water sitting higher to start with then it's going to get higher when, yeah when you add a fixed kind of extreme on top of that so yeah for um, sure yeah so in terms of the impacts that's a pretty clear yeah pretty clear link yeah yeah, yeah. So. i got a little i got i'll admit i got a little interested when you mentioned the social justice thing and i yeah. was kind of curious about it could you give me some examples or of what kind of things that you're folks were interested in or your mom was interested in or um yeah so my mom is is a fair trade like hat so um and and you know fair trade is quite a big thing now so you know dairy milk and thing all have this fair trade label on that says that you know your farmers are getting a fair deal yeah and actually more than that your farmers having a say in how the business is run and things um but my mum started it i think now 30 years ago i think it was before i was born maybe 35 mm-hmm. and there's this joke in our family that somebody said locally oh there's this new initiative that this company organization called tradecraft are selling fair trade goods you know would you would you try it and she said to my husband it won't my husband my dad and um, it, won't, it won't be much work mm-hmm. dear don't worry it won't be much work dear and there's a joke yeah. three of us girls grew up in tradecraft boxes you know because she was always it's salem turns so she'd buy the buy the um goods and then sell them on at local church fairs um she does a lot of the big local fairs now locally um and so we you know there's pictures of us on the back of bicycles in front of these big banners for, for fair trade um <laughs> and fair trade didn't taste very good in those days either oh, really? so there's a joke that like the coffee was horrible <laughs> and so and so it was very much kind of a principled stand that's surprising because uh, drink it through your teeth now like if you want the good bananas get the fair trade yeah. bananas and those are the those are the tasty ones yeah yeah so it's it's definitely easier to do now um whereas it was definitely <laughs> a principled stand and actually the coffee thing is still quite a controversial you know people are like oh i don't like this coffee you know i mm. happen not to like the fair trade coffee so i don't buy it but there's so much available that actually you just have to find one that you like um, yeah. But yeah, so that was that was kind of the the central thread, and then all kind yes. of organisations like Christian Aid and things that. Yeah, well, I don't know. We get this this coffee delivered to the house. I think it's called Pact or something. I, I oh, forget. Yeah. Then I think that's supposed to be fair trade. I think yeah. that's one of the ideas behind Probably, it. And yeah. that's really it's fine. This this is not an ad for them. I'm just <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. They're not giving me any money. It's yeah. just like we. It's been good coffee. So I'm guessing. I guess there's been a big evolution there in terms of yeah. you know, the tastiness somehow yeah i mean i don't know whether it's just such a a bigger thing now that just a lot of coffees they've taken on board that actually consumers want something Mm. ethical and they they want them to even if they've not got the fair trade you know certification they want evidence that you know people and actually wildlife as well are being are being considered for um, right in the production of this stuff but um that somebody has thought about the fairness of it as opposed to just thinking about the profit of it yeah. and they've added that extra dimension onto yeah, their business precisely and, yeah i think people do want that but that's that's certainly increased a lot in my lifetime yeah even. 
is the you know, in, increased demand for products that have some kind of um, you know, respect for the people who are providing, like the farmers who are providing the service and yeah. having a, I like that you mentioned, you know, having a say in it so that those folks, you know, beyond just selling their product, I don't know a lot about it, but that they have some input in terms yeah. of how things things are done. So th- I think people think it's just about the money, but it's it's actually um, really, yeah, having a say, so like sellers, um, growers cooperatives and things, so they really get a say and they can say what they, what kind of infrastructure they need to develop in their village, whether that's, you know, well or... Um, oh, yeah. kind of certain buildings or educational things so it's, it's a real partnership when mm. it's done right uh, rather than just just thing but I mean I guess alongside that there would often be the campaigns and, and a lot of that would be you know that the crop's been damaged by drought or um, this community's vulnerable to this kind of extreme and so you become very aware of the kind of the parallel impacts of kind of weather and climate and then mm. kind of the livelihoods of people so yeah you just kind of was always kind of in my consciousness, I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and that's, I'm just trying to picture a little bit of what that was like, and that must have been... Um, um, so what were the kind of dinner table conversations like? You know, <laughs> was the, the, Did stuff like uh, that come up a lot? or? Uh, I think, I mean, to be honest, I think the dinner table conversations were probably more the pra- practicalities, you know, I need help counting this change, or, you know, I've mm. got to leave at this time in the morning to take these five boxes to places, so, yeah, okay. uh, I don't know that we, in detail, discussed social justice at, at dinner, but, you know, I... Just more like doing it, you know, yeah. just doing it, like, listen, you know, less of an emphasis on, let's sit around and have high-minded discussions about how good we're being, Yeah. You know, let's just get down to brass tacks and do yeah, it. <laughs> like, yeah, run around the country with tradecraft boxes, so... Uh, yeah, but, yeah, there's yeah. certainly something... I should also say that tradecraft aren't sponsoring me, it's just, you know, mm. it's a part of my upbringing, so... Uh, yeah. Well, they provided some of your toys as a kid. Yeah, 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 and lots of thing. chocolate, actually. It's very handy having a mum who does sailor return when I was in my GCSEs, mm. and, you know, she'd just be like, oh, you're, you're revising, let me go and buy some chocolate from the cupboard. So uh, <laughs> it's quite a shock when I moved away from home and didn't realise we didn't have a chocolate shop in the cupboard. <laughs> Where's um, the chocolate? Yeah. But just picturing asking, like, your first, you know... Uh, the, you rent from somebody. And yeah. like, where's the where's, where's the chocolate, the chocolate cupboard? cupboard? Yeah. No, this is standard. This, 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 <laughs> we've got we had one in my house growing up all the time. Yeah. What are you? What are you <laughs> it's quite sad. Oh, um, yeah. So you, what uh, kind of started you in that? Well, you mentioned the kind of co- context of social justice and things in terms of leading you in that climate direction. Yeah. When did you first start kind of? Um, thinking of science as a possible career and a possible pathway into that because there's lots of ways you can go with that impulse right there's yeah. you know, many different ways and for you the science bit was you know where you've ended up yeah I think that was probably quite late to be honest so I did I did a maths undergraduate and that was because I you know I'd always been good at maths and I always liked maths and I, I was kind of aware that there were um meteorology courses around but I did I never really considered them hmm. as an undergraduate um, I did consider doing kind of maths and international relations you can do at St Andrews, so just a random mix, but um, I guess it's a thing where you, it's not like that together necessarily, you kind of have to do a course in both of them. Um, but I settled on the maths and actually didn't hugely think that that was leading into climate stuff, I was just kind of willing to see where it went. And I finished my undergraduate um, and wasn't really, still wasn't really mm. sure what to do. Yeah, because mathematics can be one of those degrees you get that feels like a good foundation it feels like yeah. you can okay I can jump off in a lot of different directions yeah. with this I guess the downside is of that is that 
uh, you are pretty broad. So you don't, you know, but by the time you finish, it's not like there's not necessarily a job or even a type of job lined up for you. Yeah. It's more like you're going to have to do a little bit more to fit yourself into a particular kind of job or career. Yeah. But at least you have a good foundation, a good yeah. mechanical foundation. And I think, I guess, so I didn't do as well as I should have done in my undergraduate. And so actually I was like, you know, it's not like I can just walk into anything. I need to do a bit of groundwork and demonstrate that I've got other feathers going on. But it was at Cambridge, though. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, has, that doesn't um, look bad. Well, yeah, and actually, that's an interesting... <laughs> it's an interesting argument whether Cambridge counts you. does make a difference in interviews and, mm. and kind of... You can have half a degree, you know, half grade lower. So I had a 2-2. That's the big full confession about this. So I got a 2-2 <laughs> from Cambridge. And, um, you know, actually, if some places that are less formal, if you say, you know, if they want a 2-1, there might be some room in that, which, you know, whether that's fair or not is it's discussable but mm. I mean I think it probably is actually but um but it wasn't it wasn't like I was so lot of the graduate schemes it wasn't like I was obviously like oh yes I can just walk into something so actually I was I was a bit disillusioned and, oh, I don't know what to do um and so I did kind of look more into going to the charity sector and doing something completely different um and then I decided to you know post university gap year so I went off to Belize in Central America okay to, yeah with, with the church to do some um, kind of youth work essentially um, and then just before I went I went to a kind of a graduate fair and I can't remember what had triggered the, the meteorology really at that point I think my mum happened to be at dinner with someone who was a meteorologist and, and she knew I was kind of interested and she said it had been really interesting chat so I started looking more into it and I went to this careers fair and the Reading Masters was advertised in atmosphere, ocean and climate I was like that sounds cool hmm. and then um, so I, I went out to Belize and I had my, a Skype interview while I was in Belize for this master's programme. And uh, so Ross Reynolds, who was at the University of Reading, I rang him up and I said, oh, you know, good morning, it's very early in the morning, I'm in Belize. And he said, oh yeah, he said, we're very busy, he said, because um, so it was when, uh, oh, the Icelandic volcano, which I can't pronounce, had just gone up. And, I've uh, heard that you can shorten it to E13 if you want. Okay, so yeah. E13. E13, yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh yeah, we've just been chatting to Sky News because um, we've been studying the ash and how it affects the aircraft. And, you know, there's people in this department that have been chatting to Sky News. Yeah. And I was like, right, I want in. Like, uh, this is, you know, these there are all these impacts. I've always kind of been aware, but, you know, I hadn't realised quite how, yeah. kind of day to day. Because the ash is like rock. It's like small rock particles. Yeah, that, so it's and they pretty bad for an engine. Yeah. <laughs> Like so. it would actually clog up and choke the engine, little bits of rock, and yeah. it's re really bad for your breathing as well. You yeah. don't really want to be around that uh, in, in terms of you don't want to be breathing in large clouds of shards of rocks and things like that. So, exactly. Yeah, but something about that grabbed you because they were they were doing I guess they were doing something active. They were doing something that was responding to something that was uh, really big in scope. Yeah. Like this, and they were they were in it. They kind were involved. Of, yeah. In They're right right in kind of the. Yes, it's impact stuff, and I was like, right, okay. So, uh, so I got into the masters, and, mm. and that's kind of the end of it, really. I um, went there not expecting to become an academic at all. I was like, okay, you know, fine, mm. quite bad to being a weather forecaster. And then, uh, yeah, did some research in my masters and thought, well, this is fun. I want to know more. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, that's how it happens for a lot of folks, right? I mean, uh, I've talked to a few people, you know, in here and. No, not many of them have the story where they're like, since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be... Only a couple people have had yeah. that. For most folks, it's much more like this story, and that's what mine is as well, where it's a bit more meandering, it's a yeah. bit more... Uh, it kind of integrates everything you've experienced over your, your lifetime, but it definitely depends on what opportunities are in front of you yeah. at a given decision point. You know, okay, now I'm at a time in my life I need to pick 
something yeah and you just take a look at what's in front of you yeah and uh, I love that contrast I love the contrast between the idea of you know are we people who are we kind of masters of our fate in terms of you know do we make a decision and then we make it happen or are we more just seeing what opportunities are out there and are we just responding to that and I don't think we necessarily have to answer the question but I think (laughs) you know there's no because there's there's some truth to both of them I guess and the the, the answer is a some kind of mixture some kind of linear combination of the two and the coefficients of the linear combination change over time yeah and I'm making this analogy really bizarre and nerdy that's good I'm enjoying that yeah (laughs) so um uh, yeah so that uh, what was your research that you were doing for your master's? So my master's project was actually the impact of, so the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is yep. this kind of large-scale pattern of um, pressure variability mm-hmm. over the North Atlantic, and it, it really has this big impact on um, our weather, in particular in the winter. So um, if the NAO is, so the North Atlantic Oscillation, NAO is behaving in a certain way, then you get kind of warm, wet and windy winters. So you have a lot more storms coming through and it's a lot warmer. Yeah. Um, is that because it impacts the... Um, you know, the jet stream, yeah. the position of the jet Precisely. stream and the kind of average number of wiggles you have in the jet stream. That's the technical term, right? Yeah, w- yeah, wiggles, wiggles. You know? yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Large-scale um, wiggles. Yeah, wiggles, meanders. Uh, so, it, so yeah, so it's, it's really tied to the jet stream. And I guess, I mean, so the, the pressure pattern and the, and the winds are just kind of different ways of describing the same same thing so yeah, they're, they're integrally related. That's right, because so, on a rapidly rotating planet, those two things are tied to each other. Yeah. You know, the tilt of temperature surfaces, pressure surfaces, density surfaces in the ocean, you know, those change the large-scale circulation. Yeah. And uh, so there's, yeah, and it doesn't really happen on a non-rotating planet. That's one of the cool things about studying weather on a rotating yeah. know, body is that connection. So, sorry, you were saying, yeah, the wind patterns and the pressure patterns. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're kind alternative of... complementary ways of describing the system. Yeah. yeah. So you can talk about the North Atlantic Oscillation, you can talk about the jet stream. In a way, the jet stream, as you know, it's, it's winds, and so that's more kind of maybe what we experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of you can look at the pressure pattern and go, okay, well, I know where the winds are, and you know, that's the fundamentals mm. of weather. Um, yeah, especially, <laughs> especially up here, you know, at 52 North, you uh, really have a, a good sense about which side of the jet stream you're on. You know, Are you on the more polar side or are you yeah. on the more uh, subtropical side? And you can definitely you know, feel it. And in the transition seasons, you know, we get storms relatively frequently as we as that front, you know, moves back and yeah. forth over Cambridge, you know, hopping from one side of Cambridge yeah, to the yeah, other. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be really striking. You can feel that difference. I didn't feel that as much growing up at 32 no, North, you know, yeah. the, every now and then, but that's been one of the fun things about living at a higher latitude. Yeah, so you're looking at the NAO, so some aspect the, of the NAO. Yeah, so looking at the NAO and its impact in particular, so because it changes all these weather things, I was mm-hmm. looking at its impact on energy systems. So um, wind energy in particular. So, um, well, wind energy and also other metrics. So actually, you know, if it's windier, you're going to have more wind power um, from any wind turbines you have. But actually, because of the North Atlantic Oscillation, we know that when it's warm in, wind, windy in winter, it also tends to be warmer um, because the jet stream is further north and it's bringing that warm air up, but it's also bringing those storms up. Mm. So you have this relationship that you might have a, a much colder, stiller winter or a much warmer, windier winter. So actually that's quite nice because it means that when you have um, more demand for power because it's really cold in the winter, um, no wait, sorry, it's the other way around. So when it's really cold in the winter, you might have less wind power. Mm. Um, but actually when demand is less because it's warmer, you might have more wind. Um, so there's that, but then also it's wetter at that time. Mm. So if you can tap into like a Norwegian power resource, so this is what I was looking at, if you can look into tap into like a Norwegian reservoir, you can have more water available at the same time that it's 
Is it for like a hydrothermal plant? Yeah, so yeah. Like, you know, you have a big reservoir of water and you have a waterfall and you extract energy from that using a big, you know, big turbine wheel. Basically, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. So you build mm. up these turbines. Um, so it was it was all looking at these linkages and I'm trying to remember all the, all the way around so that it fitted now. But um, essentially, yeah, how these different systems interact. Mm. And so yeah, it was quite fun. It sounds like it, yeah. So you said that actually the phase was was a, a, okay from a, a human perspective in terms of oh actually the phase of it lines up all right if it's if it's warmer um the the, the wind and the um because you need the energy when it's either really warm or really cold right yeah because you, you want to you're going to need to run your air conditioning which there's not a lot of here but you know some folks might use it some places or, or heating you need to be able to run your heating which i guess is more of the um, yeah. yeah so if you although to so actually I was, I was looking at winter so actually it was really the the cold yeah, it was yeah. the heating so actually it, it's less favorable then because when it's when it's cold you've got less wind sorry i may so, have gotten mixed up yeah so you yeah. said it's cold less wind which is not what you want yeah because under those circumstances you're not going to have as much uh, wind power like the wind turbines are not going to be yeah. generating as much electricity so you won't be able to rely on them as much for uh, your electricity needs during the times when the heating demand is really high. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so I got a little know, turned around. Thanks. Yeah. I'm no. Glad, so did I. Like, I got turned around yeah. as well. Um, I was. It's I was, easy to do with all. You know. You need a picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need a picture. Um, you need a schematic so, for sure. Uh, so the, and this was a what? Yeah. It's like oh, I did this five years ago. Yeah. Um, but so the point is, they're out of phase, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a guy um, who was talking about wind power in Texas. That was talking about that. How um, you know in Texas, if it's really hot. That probably means there's a big high pressure system sitting on top of yeah. you know Texas, and uh, so there's not a lot of wind in yeah. that scenario under the high pressure scenario. So the wind turbines won't be turning as much, uh, so they won't be able to use that wind energy as much to power all the air conditioners yeah. that, that you need to, to try oh, to stay alive, yeah. uh, <laughs> stay alive and cool in Texas in the summer. Um, so the but then you install a solar solar power. Yeah, yeah, solar must be, uh, I don't know necessarily in Texas, but it must be a way they can go, and you, would, you would think. Yeah, I would guess um, for the hot weather, the solar should. Yeah, I know in Arizona they, they have some pretty big solar farms, yeah, from what I understand. Right. Yeah. Um, so the this engineer was talking about that problem of the wind and the, um, the need, for the demand being out of phase. He was pointing to that as like, this is why we need better battery technology. Yeah. Like, this is why we need better storage technology. Yeah. And I like your the thing you said about the Norwegian water reservoir. That could be a kind of way to store some, something. Yeah. Okay, it's the, it's the moisture of content to the system. So it's not you're not doing the same thing. You're not like just hooking up a giant battery. But I like the idea of thinking of that as a way to store energy. Yeah. As a way to store um, you know, some aspect of uh, energy that the natural earth system is basically yeah. providing for us and that we just need to tap into it in yeah. some way. Hydrothermal uh, reservoirs are really cool actually. Mm. They're, you know, I really love, we went to one on holiday in Scotland and yeah. we were just like, this is really fun! Um, where they have these, you know, big reservoirs that they can essentially hear city for a couple of hours if, yeah. they, if they need backup. And, uh, Do you just look for a place where you know you, you could either there already is a mountain that's really high up and a, a potential place you could either create a waterfall or you know or take advantage of an existing waterfall? Yeah I guess you know? it's, yeah, it's where you can build a dam essentially mm -hmm. so, yeah. so it's generally a yeah. You need somewhere you can build a barrier that's, yeah yeah, yeah so you can take advantage of the water rushing through it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've not been talking about this in a very expert way, and it's made me realize how little I talk about 
you know, this kind of, these kind of energy systems and yes. this kind of like way to, it's just not the every, everyday vocabulary that I use. Yeah, okay. So I think it's, for me, that's part of why it's like, oh, I feel a, a little bit awkward talking about it. <laughs> it's something I, I know something about in terms of just some concepts, but I'm certainly not an expert. Yeah. Um, well, same to me. I mean, because I, you know, I was looking at the weather side of it, not the energy system side of it. So I chatted yeah. to some really interesting people who are kind of energy system professionals, but it wasn't, Yeah. You know, they, they had that expertise and I, I had my expertise in that. That's right. Yeah, so we ended up talking about the thing that neither of us is an expert in. Which yeah, is, okay. Which is, which is fine. I like that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's good to flag that up. Try <laughs> so to remember like, it. Yeah, try to remember know. it the right way around. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Try to get the phase right. And yeah. Both of it. We can help each other out, though. Yeah. You're not, you're not alone. Um, so that, that does sound like an exciting project. And, uh, I th- oh, you know, that, what that makes me think of is um, climate science and it's so interdisciplinary. Yeah. Even just the physical side of it. Even before you get to... The, pro- the problem of, well, how do we find alternative ways to generate energy yeah. if, you know, burning coal and oil is bad for our planetary health and what yeah. are the alternatives? Then you need a whole new crop of, of experts just to think about the different kinds of energy systems we could have. And yeah. then you need another crop of experts to think about the economics of it and another crop of experts to think about the politicians. So I really, we desperately need a lot of experts. Yeah. Like we desperately need as many people with, you know, uh, with training and uh, and the expertise in these areas as we could possibly get. Yeah. And uh, so it's so surprising to me. You know, some folks have the the sentiment of like, ah, experts, you know, we're tired of hearing from them. It's really scary to me because I'm yeah. like, no, I don't want to be unmoored from reality. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be, we want, like, I want, I do want the people in charge to actually know something about the systems that they're studying yeah. and not just to, you know, go with their gut and not just to feel like, well, this feels like the right switch to turn, so I'm going to yeah. turn this switch. But anyway, that's another conversation. Yeah. I'm really hyped up today. Yeah, So what was the Reading? So that was your master's so that was my master's project. And then you stayed on to do a yeah. PhD. So you got to stay in Reading for a little while. Yeah. And had some... So, yeah, I was in Reading for a, a time. I was never in one house for more than a year. Oh, but okay. I was I was in Reading for five years, which is mm. about as long as I've been anywhere. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that was, that was really cool. Um, so yeah, I, I did my PhD, so I was gradually, I was gradually moving forward. So my PhD was about <laughs> the impacts of Arctic sea ice on the mid-latitude atmosphere. So you were chatting earlier about the jet stream, or we yes. were chatting earlier about the jet stream. And there was this, um, after we had a really cold winter in 2010, I think, there was this kind of idea that started to become really popular, that if you um, reduce your Arctic sea ice, that causes... Um, kind of a, a wavier jet stream mm-hmm. almost, and and kind of a, a slower jet stream. So there was all these ideas so about wavier, like it goes further north and south. Yeah, so yeah. you get these big meanders, mm-hmm. and also that it moves such that we have. So you were talking again about when it moves south, you have colder weather. So there was this idea that if you if you move from sea ice, you shift the jet a bit south. Um, so you get so we would get would get these really cold winters because of Arctic sea ice change. And this mm. argue, this kind of um, idea became really popular and you know made it into some of the big newspapers there was some quite high you know all this arctic blast yeah <laughs> everyone loves yeah. an arctic blast which is so a really annoying term um, general warming in the atmosphere you know co2 adds to extra energy down here yeah. at the surface that melts arctic sea ice so there's been a retreat of arctic sea ice and a loss of the wintertime yeah. sea ice and what is it about that that changes the waviness of the jet stream do folks have a good sense of that or is that still so, so to some extent so I'm just going to take a step back as well so yeah, um, 
when you when you heat the atmosphere due to greenhouse gases, there's another thing that happens, which is that you heat the tropic, the high altitude tropics. So high up in the atmosphere in the tropics, you heat that more than you heat the pole. Mm. And it's fairly well understood that that, that leads to a, a poleward shift in, in these jet stream systems. Right. So that's that's kind of fairly well yeah. understood. Because like we said, the tilt of, you know, let's say temperature surfaces. Yeah. Um, changes the circulation yeah. on a rapidly rotating planet. Yeah. And so if you change that pole to equator temperature gradient and that temperature structure, then that changes the circulation. Yeah. yeah. So you so you sh- change the strength and the, and the position of, of your circulation. Mm. And so actually there's this other idea that when you remove Arctic sea ice, that's, that warms the surface. Well, so you've, you've warmed the atmosphere and that heats up the sea ice. But then, because for various reasons, including the fact that sea ice is quite reflective, when you start removing sea ice, um, you heat the surface more than it would have been otherwise. So yeah. we, we call this Arctic amplification. Because you, you make it darker. You make, you make the it surface darker. darker and it absorbs more sunlight. It's yeah. pretty simple. Yeah, so, so the ocean absorbs more sunlight and then it re-emits that. And mm. so then you end up with this, this amplification. And there's lots of other, you know, Arctic amplification is actually quite a lot of things going on at once. Yeah. But this is kind of the sea ice feedback is quite... So feedback, so where you, yeah, have something and then it either flips back to make the thing that started off stronger. So you heat it up and then it actually heats up more because of the sea ice feedback. Yeah, that's right. And this is um, part of why the polar regions tend to change more rapidly or yeah. they have been changing more rapidly than other yeah. parts of the planet partly because of that ice albedo feedback yeah melt the ice you make expose darker ocean surfaces yeah. so that will absorb more sunlight and will heat up more um yeah, yeah. that's uh, okay. so you then yeah. form yeah. ice and then yeah so it's all all a loop that's right um and so actually that effect so we're actually warming up the poles more than the atmosphere that's kind of decreasing the difference between the equator and the pole right. in terms of your temperature. So that has the opposite effect on on the jet stream and on the circulation to what's happening high up in the atmosphere. Hmm. And so you've got these two competing effects. And actually, um, one, whether they're kind of equally effective, so whether the thing at the surface and the thing at, at high altitude are having you know similar effects, and actually what you would then see happening overall makes this a really complicated question. Hmm. Um, and so, and there are other things as well in terms of where exactly your sea ice is. So we, we have this, uh, well, we know that surface, so fronts in the atmosphere, so we have a sharp change in, in temperature. Um, that's where you get a lot of these storms and storm tracks and things. Yeah. So, so baroclinic is the term for kind of where you have these rapid changes and, and kind of slanting in in space. Yeah, baroclinic is, uh, I these, so <laughs> they're jargony, <laughs> right? Baroclinic and yeah. barotropic. I think... Um, it's maybe not 100% uh, of the answer. It's maybe not the full answer, but the simplest way I think about barotropic and baroclinic. You know, barotropic means the whole column yeah, it's is moving high. or doing something all together. Yeah. It's, some, it's something about the whole column. Yeah. But baroclinic means there's some vertical structure there. Yeah. It could There could be something different happening up high versus down here at the yeah. ground. And that vertical structure leads to... That vertical changes in instabilities, and so you get these kind of storms or eddies, yeah. or you know, you get these these instability buildings where our storms and things come. Yeah, from. because some vertical structures in the atmosphere and ocean are unstable. They're in a fluid in a fluid dynamic sense. They're unstable. Yeah. They're moving quickly, and because of the structure, they you know, form these small scale. They could be oscillations, or they could be you know, just deviations from kind of normal boring circulation. Yeah. They're very exciting, uh, turbulent kind of uh, phenomenon and uh, I love that stuff I think it's really fascinating yeah. it's the, the coolest and uh, it's just the coolest that we can get it just from vertical structure um, yeah so that's an important mechanism in the atmosphere as well for changing the equator to pole temperature gradient right it's, yeah it's, yeah it's, um, 
and instabilities generate kind of storms and weather, yeah. for lack of a better term. Yeah. And that fluxes heat and other properties north and south. You know, it tends to yeah. flex heat to the poles. Yeah, it's so it balances out this, this, well, if you've got warmer at the equator and colder at the bottom, then, you, mm -hmm. yeah, you have these storms that kind of essentially flux that heat. Yeah. So it's all this kind yeah. of balanced system. So again, that's another reason why it's, you know, complicated to understand what an effect of something would be, because, okay, you change your gradient, but then a system might respond to that. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, what's the end result going to be? So, yeah. um, so there was this really, you know, this really intricate question, and uh, we tried to look at an aspect of that during my PhD, um, which was quite fun because it's quite a kind of a controversial topic. But mm -hmm. we did that by doing uh, very idealised experiments. I like that. I'm on board so, with idealised. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love idealised because you understand those systems a bit better. Yeah. It's easier to turn the knobs and to see how this idealised system responds. Yeah. Then it can teach you a lot about how to interpret more complicated systems, like more complicated models or uh, even the real world kind of phenomenon. Isaac yeah. Held likes to call it hierarchical modeling. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm a big fan of that approach. And because uh, you need this, you need like, if you just start out with the most complex model that you can think of, then the joke is that you have now created another thing you don't understand. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, you don't understand the real atmosphere or ocean, and now you created a model that you also don't understand. Yeah. So you need these idealized frameworks that you can play with and build your intuition and build your sense of like, oh, well, when I change, uh, I don't know, the heating gradient between the tropics and the poles in a simple system, this is the way the, the eddies tend to respond. Yeah. Which is not something that, you know, if you tried to do that in a full model, there'd be so much other stuff going on. There'd yeah. be so many other processes kicking off that you might have a hard time disentangling. Okay, well, what part was the response to the change that I introduced in my little experiment? And what was just the other nonlinear coupled, you know, a thousand other processes yeah. that, that happened. Yeah, so you were looking at it. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the idealized problem, if you don't mind. This. Yeah, so so we chose to do kind of a, a middle, so you're talking about this hierarchy, and, and I went for like a middle ground in this okay, hierarchy. Yeah. So the position was when, when I started doing this work that lots of people were running, you know, or they were looking at all the, you know, the coupled models that exist, mm -hmm. so these models that have ocean and atmosphere and sea ice and... Um, and how they reacted as, as sea ice changed, mm -hmm. but then you, you can't get causality out of that. So you, you see that as your system changes, your sea ice changes and your atmosphere changes. Right. But, and you can do statistical analysis, you can regress everything, but you, you don't know yeah. what's causing what. You can do correlations. You can say, well, I saw that these things happened at the same time or yeah. within three months lag of each other. And yeah. you can have some physical argument why one would have led to the other, but you don't actually know that something else didn't mm -hmm. happen first to set them both up. Yeah, and it's easy to come up with those post hoc, like after the fact. People yeah. Like, ah, this must be this mechanism does this, yeah, but exactly. you might just be kidding yourself. Possibly, you might be fooling yourself. It's a, yeah. pos it's a possibility. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we, we had these results, and we had results as well when people had done that on on climate models and on observations, and then also there was um, other people who'd done as you said, just just kind of add heating. So you have a very simple model. So for example, there's um, it's got kind of got the equations that describe flow of motion, but it doesn't have moisture in it. For example. Right. Um, and the surface is you you just kind of impose some heating. So you, you have kind of your atmosphere and you just add heating mm -hmm. either the equator or the pole and you see what the response is. And there was kind of a certain amount of difference between the results that you got from those two types of experiments. So what we wanted to do was kind of fill in the hierarchy. So um, my advisor had, had done some work previously in, in an aquaplanet. So this is where you have, um, you take your, your climate model. Who is that? David Brayshaw. Oh, okay, okay, aquaplanet. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so sorry, there's other ahead. people who've done aquaplanets for ocean or atmosphere. So yeah. this is like an atmosphere aquaplanet. David Ferrer has done some. Yes. You know, ocean, so he's done ocean. Ocean aquaplanet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So actually, an atmospheric aquaplanet's odd because obviously it's not 
aqua. But um, <laughs> the, the aqua is in the ocean. But the idea is that the lower boundary condition. So you, you have a, a model of the um, atmosphere, and then at the bottom of that, you just assume that that's a water surface. So you, you take out all your continents, um, and so you have no asymmetry. So you have this perfectly mm. symmetric. Um, so it looks like the Earth, and the fact that it has the same rotation, it has the same amount of solar radiation coming in, it has the same composition of the atmosphere. Um, but you don't have lower boundary asymmetries, so you don't have any continents. Um, and so that gives you kind of a, a world that you can play with. Exactly. Um, but it's more complicated than some of the models I described earlier because it's, it's got full moist processes, so you've got moisture in the atmosphere. Okay, right. Um, and so I played with that. So I basically added loads of different amounts of sea ice, anything mm. from no sea ice at all to... Uh, a world where sea ice extends to 45 degrees. So, so both, that's like the north of France. Both poles? Um, both yeah, poles, both poles. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's symmetric, kind of symmetric in that way? Yeah. Was it like dynamic sea ice? Would it grow and change or did you kind of impose it and see? I just imposed happens? sea ice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the sea ice just kind of sat there um, and just obviously was able to mediate how much heat was getting to the atmosphere. Right, okay. Essentially. Um, and yes, I played around, played around with those. I had these, you know, eight experiments of all these different amounts of sea ice. Um, and that was really neat because it enabled me to compare kind of how the how the response grew as you as you added more ice. So each each experiment was like eight years of just running it straight, mm. and then you could compare these different experiments. And so what you kind of see is that when you have uh, not so much sea ice um, up to about sixty degrees, so that's al- already a lot of sea ice compared to what we what we see now. Um, so it's already down to like yeah north of Scotland mm. um, and, and all the way around the earth as well so it's, it's more sea ice than we have but even up it's to not that a stretch point, for the Antarctic I mean, no get, it's you know. for the Antarctic it's pretty good I mean mm. I, I didn't know very much about the Antarctic at this point so it was very much Arctic motivated and now I'm like these experiments are really cool for the Antarctic uh, yeah. and for kind of paleo climate where you had all this sea ice so uh, they're quite neat they have applications that I didn't realise um, oh nice you uh, want to do more with them can you pull anything else out maybe of them or, yeah, so, uh, yeah. there's always the, the uh, finding time and funding for that sort yeah, of thing it's, it's exactly. tricky what do you feel like you learned did you have, do you have like a, a bullet point sort of thing that you pulled out of your experiments or is it hard to boil down in that in that way I mean I guess I guess the, the key thing I would say is that the, the response that you see is actually consistent between the, the really ideal models and the simple models so you, you do see that as you remove ice you your jet moves equator wind. Oh, okay. Um, but, well, you have a sense of the jet moving equator wind. So essentially, um, your your jet kind of weakens um, uh, more equator wind. But if you if you then just look at the zonal wind profile, so that's how we describe the jet, it's just the, you know, you, you draw a line in space of your latitude against wind strength. And so actually from that, you're not really changing the core jet core. You're just kind of changing the edges of it. So you get this sense that it's kind of a more equatorward mm. jet, mm-hmm. but it's you're not getting these big changes that are seen in the idealized experiments until you start really hitting it. And so you have so having sea ice to like ice fifty five. So essentially the responses are kind of consistent. They're not inconsistent between the different types of experiments, but there's a nonlinearity mm. that means that when you get to about fifty five, fifty you, you really keep the system into a completely different state because you're... When the sea ice gets down to 55. Yeah, because you're putting sea north. ice in that core region that I was talking about earlier where all the storms are. So you're really adding this big surface change right 
where all your storms are forming mm. and so they're, they're feeling completely different kind of fluxes and yeah just, and you're mm. you're adding to that instability as well so oh, you're adding to the instability yeah. so, so well when you sense. when you add sea ice so all my experiments i thought about the sense of adding sea ice so it's confusing because it's like opposite climate change so right. i always have to like flip my head upside down um so when you've got more ice you've got more of that instability kind of where what when you've got ice down at like 55 degrees you're adding to that instability right where the where the storms are and so actually that kind of that really hits the climate system and you start to get something really different in the atmosphere hmm. in terms of you know your jet completely moves and gets a lot stronger yeah but um, you were establishing the physical plausibility and causal connection between sea ice and atmosphere and ocean and how that could respond to heating yeah and, you know, basically looking at the um, pl- the causal chain there and what could happen and yeah yeah no that's good i, I like that um and it's not that you need approval from me, I'm just saying It's just providing a bridge, so. Yeah. It's funny you doing this idea like stuff, where sometimes you feel like, oh, you're removed from the real world, and you know, mm. you want to get stuck in, but then actually you have to remind yourself that, yeah, as you say, you're adding to this, this kind of understanding yeah. in your... Well, um, I'm a bit biased, because my PhD was also an idealised uh, model yeah, of the okay. ocean. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, what some people call a sector model, yeah. where it's, you know, just a kind of super idealized Atlantic or Pacific, you know, it has an ACC yeah. and it has, uh, high, it has gyres and it has, um, some wind stress blowing over the top of it. And I basically did some experiments looking at the, um, eddy saturation and eddy compensation or how the ocean responds to changes in wind stress down, yeah. um, you know, around the Southern ocean. Um, and it was in a super idealized framework yeah. as well, uh, which I really enjoyed and, uh, I liked doing. And like you said, hopefully, you you end up building you, you add your pebble to the pile is how my advisor yeah. used to put it you you add your bit of the hierarchy to the structure yeah. is another way that we could put it and uh so i'm i'm, I'm biased but i'm a big yeah, fan yeah. of that kind of work Very so common. yeah so in your edinburgh one we talked about that a bit that was more climate focused in terms of uh not public outreach but policy making yeah. making policy relevant yeah that must have been a big switch that must have been yeah. huge like cuz you go from playing from this mathematical yeah. toy fun system that does tell you something real about the the system, but it's super idealized to having people like, what's going to happen? Yeah, <laughs> Asking yeah. you directly, like, what's going to happen in the real world? Like, yeah. Oh, you know, and you know how complicated that question is now. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the thing, because people, you know, oh, you know, I've done a PhD in, in the jet stream, you know, we really want to know how much, you know, our storm's going to change mm-hmm. on the west coast of Scotland. <laughs> no, oh we my. don't. Um, you know, it's, it's, Nobody really, knows that. it's a really, really difficult question. Not and, to that level. We can we can make some broad statements very confidently. Yeah. But in terms of making that specific of prediction about, like, what's going to happen in west Scotland... That's yeah. way too specific. That's way too. Focused. You know, we've got some islands. You know, what, what's gonna? What's what risk? Kind of risks are they at? Mm. And, um, and it's, it's not like you can do. You can do something. You yeah, know, you yeah. Can you can about... say it's. You know, it's it's likely that we think that this will happen. And actually, it's nice because there's some things that you can say mm. in terms of. So there's a thing that when you've got a thermodynamic argument. So when you've got something that's like, well, we know the atmosphere is getting warmer. That's no problem. We can we can do that. So actually, if you've got something that's like, well, warm atmosphere holds more moisture, you can start saying something about precipitation. Yes. So you don't know where the storms are going to go, but you know that if you've got a storm, you might be able to say something about how much rainfall that produces. That's right. So but that's quite a hard idea to get across, but you, you can say something about, you know, what, what storms will do if you have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just kind of, because, like, you know, people want to know if storms are going to be stronger, and actually there's lots of, lots of things, you know, is yes. the wind going to be stronger? Is the rain going to be heavier? Is it, you know, are there going to be more storms? Yeah. Are there going to be bigger storms? Ted Shepard a few years ago was fond of saying that, you know, we can make 
thermodynamic arguments really confidently, yeah. which is, I think, what you were yeah. alluding to. I think to I'm making dead chip, but, but the, yeah. <laughs> but the dynamic arguments are harder to make because fluid dynamics is difficult. Yeah. And nonlinearities are difficult. Yeah. And we can't really make... You couldn't exactly make predictions there, but we, we are moving in that direction. Yeah. You know, we can make some confident statements, but it's just a physically harder problem. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like you said, the thermodynamics of it is simple. Yeah. You put more CO2 in the atmosphere, you get more energy down here at the surface, and that energy is going to generally heat things up. Yeah. And we can be super confident about that basic thermodynamic yeah. picture. Um, in terms of how are we going to have more storms in a specific region, yeah, that's way tougher. That's yeah. way harder. Yeah. So... A very different world. So that must have, yeah, that must have taken some adjusting. But it sounds like you had good colleagues. You you mentioned there were people kind of helping you with that transition. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So, I mean, I guess, in a way, the, the postdocs were working on quite different things. So we didn't, you know, other people working yes. on kind of adaptations of plants and, and things or, you know, particular kind of systems. Mm. So um, there weren't, wasn't loads, but yeah, the, the people kind of at the climate exchange were kind of very on the nice. kind of things that you had to how you have to communicate things. So, um, yeah. Well, Heather Ford and I just talked about this experience of when you're a student, you have kind of had that student community. Yeah. And you're all kind of, there's some commonality there in terms of what you're trying to do yeah. typically. And in the U.S., you're taking classes together and stuff as well. Um, but then when you move to the postdoc stage, it, that, that feels a bit more fragmented. You don't get quite the same sense of that community being there because everyone is running off in their own individual directions a bit more. Yeah. And they can feel a bit lonely. They can feel a bit isolating. It can be really tough, actually. Yeah. I think it depends as well on the kind of project you're on. So, you know, if you're in a, on a big project where there's a few people that are working on the same project, and, yeah, they'll be doing slightly different research, but you're, you're more closely tied mm-hmm. versus, you know, if you're the only postdoc that happens to be on, on your piece of funding, then you can have a quite different, different experience. Um, yeah, that's true. So, yeah. What do you have... Er- I guess here, are you more individual or is there a larger project that you're working on? So here I'm, I'm on a large project, so it's a, a National Environment Research Council large grant, but um, it's, a, it's a bit of a strange one, so it's not really a polar, polar mm. large grant, so it's called Real Projections and people are all looking at different aspects of how we make, um, we, so we take the information from these couple of climate models that run for these climate assessments actually how we take the information on those and rather than just averaging them all together and kind of going well this is our future how we combine that with what we know from the real world and what we understand and kind of make i guess make cleverer Hmm. cleverer projections of the future what kind of tools are you using for that um so i'm well i'm at the moment looking in in semen models and trying to establish some physical processes that i can say well i know that these models are um, producing sea ice for the, the right or the wrong reasons. So, so more than just are they, have they got the right amount of sea ice, do we understand something about um, if they've got the ring sea ice, is it just because um, the, the temp- ocean temperatures in the hemisphere are, are really wrong or is it because um, the winds are far too strong and so they're moving sea ice about in the wrong way? So, so that kind of question is like a process understanding. Um, and then there's Exeter are kind of the core team, the University of Exeter, on this project, and they're really looking to build statistical models that we can hopefully feed in this information about, well, there's a relationship between how much sea ice there is in a model and, you know, how, how warm the ocean is or something, mm. and this is what we know about the real world, and, and try and build that into the statistical model. Because like um, you said, the tricky thing is you can look at correlations, but those aren't necessarily physical connections that could yeah. be kind of uh, driven you know correlated processes can be driven by a third thing that's yeah. just pushing them in the same way 
and they might be not actually causally connected to each other. So yeah. when you said things about the real world, like some physical balances and stuff that you're like conservation of energy or something, or how do you uh, so what do you mean by, by in my case it's comparing to, to observations of satellite? Oh, I see what you so, mean. Okay. So so um, yeah, you might be able to feel kind of a physical model of or a simple physical balance. Um, but in my case, thus far, it's more kind of comparing to to how the observations right. that we have look um, and, and comparing those two things. And so you can say, well, actually, so some work that Tom Bracegill here has done that says, well, we know that um, a model that has more sea ice area in Antarctica loses more sea ice area as mm-hmm. we increase temperatures. Yeah. And so actually... it started out with more. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's kind of one, one reason why. And so actually, if we know that um, a climate model has twice as much sea ice as what we've seen in satellite observations, then we might argue that the amount of sea ice they are going to lose is not what we're going to see in the real world mm. because we know that the amount they lose is related to how much they have. So you'd want to get models that are close to observations and then and then say, well, that's how much sea ice they might lose. Mm. But how much sea ice they might lose might not tell you about how that then interacts with the ocean because they might be losing a certain amount of sea ice but they might not have the right kind of processes of how sea ice interacts with the ocean. Yeah. So then we need to come up with more more linkages of saying, well, in observations we know that uh, this much sea ice loss leads to this much, you know, stratification of the ocean. So it's really interesting. That in a model? Yeah, it's interesting. And you you've thought about this a lot more than I have. But I was just trying to imagine a pathological case where, well, this model. Let's pick a model. Model A. You know, yeah. has too much sea ice, but that's just because the initial conditions are a little bit off. Yeah. But exactly. actually, maybe the physics is is pretty darn right. Maybe yeah. the physics is pretty darn good. Yeah. Whereas you could imagine model B has the right kind of sea ice distribution. Yeah. But that's almost an accident of the initial conditions and the physical processes of the model are maybe not that good. Yeah. So in terms of how they respond to climate change, um, maybe model A has actually got the right response. Yeah. But <laughs> so then you so you wouldn't get the end answer because you're starting in the wrong place. But yeah, say if yeah. you could, you know, assume that the model's twenty one hundred was realities two thousand, mm. then would the models twenty two hundred look like realities, you know, twenty one hundred? Mm. Um and that's something I kind of I think would be quite fun to do but I'm, I'm not doing it but but to kind of take the model at the point where they look like observations oh, and then oh, and then oh. see how, how much sea ice they would lose in oh, I like that idea. that's a fun fun idea yeah look at the sea ice and say well here's when it looks like the year 2000 or whatever yeah. and so let's follow it from there and, yeah and, uh, but re- then mm. obviously then that's out of sync with your greenhouse gases and, and things in other yeah. parts of the climate system that's so true. because it's all really interconnected it yeah you dig yourself in a hole, but um. And now you're like, yeah. in describing that, I got the um, desire to just go run back to an idealized model. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's too complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I wanna, I wanna just turn a switch on and do a yeah, step response like, oh, this experiment. Is and and just see yeah. if I change this, what happens to this? Yes. Yeah. It's such a clean. It's such a, such a cleaner picture, but you know we need the coupled models because they are representative of the real climate system, which is highly coupled and yeah. has many different processes on different spatial scales. So you need them, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting about, we're still digging into the CMIP5 suite yeah. so much, and there's still so much we can learn from it. And this is the suite of models that have been run by you know various modeling centers all over the world to um, try to project what the planet is gonna do in response to climate change. And it, 
before long, it's going to be time for AR6. I mean, AR6 yeah. is coming, and the amount of data contained in AR6 is just going to be insane. You know, I, I forget what the projection was, but it's, you know, order, I think it is orders of magnitude bigger than CMIP 5, yeah. if I remember right. And uh, that's going to be the challenge to deal with. But I guess what I'm getting at is, like, it seems like there's still a lot we could learn from CMIP yeah. 3 and 4 and 5, and but the community, you know, understandably is rushing ahead towards, you know, even high resolution setups with more processes. It's it's good. I just feel like maybe we're going to lose something and we just don't have the time and you know funding to like really dig into all the aspects of CMIP of these CMIP suites that we would like to. Yeah. It's it's astonishing. I saw I was at a meeting last week and somebody, you know, presented a, a new result that was that was something about kind of um CMIP the CMIP 5 model so that's the, the last time around and, and you know said no one's looked at this yet and we just found this and and you know it's, they're not hugely complicated things to look at but you know it takes a huge amounts of time and and you know you sit down and you go well I'm going to look at you know the the strength of the the jet stream and you know that's that's fine that shouldn't be that hard but then you've got to work out exactly what region you're defining and then all the models have their data formatted slightly differently and they have them on on different resolutions yeah so you have to work out how so there's you know there's always quite a lot of a lot of work to do to, to get to anything and and you know the data tube so you need quite a lot of processing yeah power and so yeah there, there is there is huge amounts of things that have been looked at and seen but you know people don't just people don't have the time to, yeah. to look at everything and so you know there's loads of stuff i'd love to look at I think that's part of why there's been a push to do more with machine learning in terms of mm-hmm. climate science in our field yeah. because, like you mentioned, um, you almost need some guidance in terms of where do I even start? You know, we have some of our physical ideas that we like to test in these model suites, but yeah. um, if you had a <clears throat> some kind of tool that could point you in possibly interesting directions, that yeah. could be useful too. You know, so I don't have a great example, but you know, if you had. Um, kind of downscaled versions of climate models where you can represent their essential features um, by some kind of, you know, you represent their essential features uh, without taking on all of the data. Maybe you can yeah. learn something by playing with those kind of downscaled, simplified versions of the CMIP suites. Yeah. And then go back to the full suite and see if what the machine learning algorithm yeah. you know, indicated. Is that really there? Is that really present? Um, so then you, you mean like extract kind of essentially the metadata, so you know these are the key components of these models and these are the key kind of climate outputs of these models and then how can we build some kind of understanding of is that what you meant or not? Oh something like that. There's this kind of there are these kind of matrix methods that you yeah. can play with where uh, so uh, there's a researcher named uh, Katawala who did this yeah. a little in, in the ocean um, context a little while ago, I believe it was. And uh, so he was trying to say, can we represent some, a complicated model like SOCI just by a big, the Southern Ocean State Estimate, just by a big matrix okay. that you give like the initial state and it evolves into some okay. kind of final state. Yeah. So some aspects of the, the full coupled model system behavior is... You know, captured by this matrix. Yeah. And I don't know the details of how that's that's done, but yeah. um, it, it takes a lot of computing power to yeah. gen- generate that matrix. But once you have the matrix, you can do a lot with it, and you can yeah. apply it to lots of different systems. So yeah. um, I think probably we're going to need to do this sort of thing with climate models yeah. as the data and the model sophistication grows exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what have you um to get back to your project that you're yeah. working on now? What sort of things have you touched up against so far have you found anything that that you like to tell people about or that you find kind of interesting or yeah so 
are we, I mean, I'll be honest, it still feels like quite a, you know, quite a complicated story. So um, I've been looking at, so how I've been looking at these, these sea ice models in, in the CMIP5 kind of group is that I've been trying to look at how sea ice forms dynamically and thermodynamically. So obviously thermodynamically your sea ice melts or freezes, um, but you, you push your sea ice around. So if you've got growth of sea ice in a, in a given location, that could be because it's cold and it's frozen, or it could be because a wind blew the, the sea ice into that region. Um, and so we, we care which of those is happening because it affects you know the relationship with the ocean. So if you actually form sea ice, then because the, the ocean water is salty and that the sea ice can't contain that much salt, you reject salt and salt, salty water is denser and so you really affect kind of the, the ocean so that water sinks and you affect yeah, the stratification so when, of the ocean and it goes off and, and hits the ocean circulation. Right, when sea ice melts, it rejects salt and it puts salt into the... Yeah, freezes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. that's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the wrong, the wrong, word, the wrong <laughs> yeah. word came out of my mouth, yeah. Uh, when sea ice forms... Yeah. Ah, that's where I went. I used an F word, forms. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. The word freezes came out instead of forms. So, yeah. <laughs> when sea ice forms, rejects it rejects yeah. the salt. Thank you. And the salt gets injected into the ocean, and the salt makes the ocean denser. Yeah. Yeah. And um, around Antarctica, the salt has a huge role in controlling what the vertical structure of the ocean yeah. you know, looks like, and so it changes the circulation, and it changes how the Southern Ocean and Antarctica kind of responds to climate change yeah. yeah so there's a really important connection so between sea ice and um yeah circulation and thermodynamics down there yeah so so you, you need to know kind of which of these processes is happening whereas you know the other thing is if you if you move ice out of a region and it's really cold then you might form more ice mm. and that's different by, from if the sea ice mm. just stays there yeah moving um, it out by you blow wind yeah and the wind will move the sea ice to a different place yeah exposing open water which then freezes yeah. you get the salt effect again yeah um, so you really want to know which of those is happening. So, you know, if over a course of a week, the amount of sea ice in an area doesn't change, but actually you've had this really dynamic behavior happening, then you, you really care because that really affects what the ocean sees. Yeah. So, um, so I've been trying to look at these, these kind of processes and say, well, if a model's got the right amount of sea ice, is there a balance between, are some of them doing this nice dynamic behavior, which we see in observations, and are some of them just kind of sitting there growing their ice and then just, you know, hmm. not doing anything else? Um, and that's what we found, actually. So in Antarctica, we know that the models, um, some of them are much better than others at recreating yeah. um, satellite sea ice observations. Hmm. Um, and, but actually, even if we take, so I found about six models that look as if their seasonal cycle of sea ice um, extends, so total cover of sea ice in the Antarctic is, is quite nice. They look quite good. Um, and some of those models, it looks like they've got the, the roughly the right kind of dynamic overturning, which is, is quite impressive because there's loads of stuff that has yeah. to go on to get this right. And the overturning is the up and down and north and south kind of circulation broad, yeah. broadly. Yeah. So I'm really bad actually and I use the word overturning for, for the wrong thing. Oh, yeah. so, so when I talk about overturning of sea ice, I'm kind of talking about just the, the redistribution. So, mm. uh, so I'll use redistribution instead because oh, yeah. that's better. Because overturning, yeah, is you're, the ocean like up and down. You'll confuse oceanographers. Yeah, yeah so redistrib- <laughs> I need to remember to use the word redistribution. So you get this redistribution of sea ice and a reforming. Um, so some of the models are actually doing that quite well, which is really impressive because it says their temperatures must be okay, their winds must be quite okay, the way that their sea ice responds to the winds must be quite okay. Um, but there are a few other models that they look lovely in terms of their sea ice, you know, you look at the, the map of sea ice and it looks beautiful. Um, but the dynamics of that are, are not mm. really happening. So the amount of 
this redistribution that you have is far too weak. This is model B that we invoked earlier. Yeah, yeah. The one that looks right, but actually the dynamics aren't quite right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you want to know, well, does that have implications for change? And mm. I haven't got to that bit yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but I have got to the point of, you know, these, these processes are, are really, really, really kind of important. And actually we are getting some models. So you need to look at more than just, you know, or we think that you'll need to look at more than just the, the kind of the sea arts. You need to begin to have an understanding of this. And actually the, the understanding of what the dynamics is doing can tell you something about you know, that might lead you to look at the winds or the wind stress field and go, oh, well, there's something wrong with, with this other field. Sure, yeah. So it, it's actually, although we weren't using it as a diagnostic thing, we want to use it as kind of a, a predictor, but actually it's, it's doing up some interesting hmm. diagnostics, like, oh, there's something funny. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's so much, there's such complicated models that there are, there are you know, funny, funny details, and often that doesn't affect the large scale, but it's, hmm. if you're actually looking at that really detailed process, you need to... You need to notice yeah. that something's funny. I guess we won't throw any particular modeling center under the bus. No, I'm going to be... Uh, podcast. We'll be very diplomatic. I did accidentally. <laughs> I gave a talk last week and I did have um, a little thing that I'd given internally where I had good, bad, and then I had to go, uh, less good. <laughs> so, um, But I think, you know, there's, there's a fairly recognition in the community that Antarctic sea ice in, in the cement models is, is not... Mm. It's not one of the things that the current modeling community has been best at. Not on the... Um, reproducing not in the on the climate model scale yeah you know you can do a better job if you have kind of an ocean only model yeah and if you have that way you have you can tune the parameters a bit better and you can try to reproduce the physics a bit you can pay more attention to the physics whereas if you're building a climate model that's not necessarily the first order thing that you'll look at when you're building a climate model right when you're building a climate model you want to see can i get a reasonably realistic physical system that can reproduce how the global mean temperature changes in response to historic forcing that we then think we'll probably have the right sensitivity for future forcing yeah yeah yeah. and and you know with the climate model yeah you want to make sure that the you know the energetic fluxes are kind of balancing each other in the right way Mm -hmm. so you've not got energy that's you know a model that's losing energy yeah you know because that would be really bad um (laughs) so so you know these are the things that people really worry about and actually um you know, there's a sense that maybe the Antarctic historically has been less of a concern. So even when people have really looked at sea ice, maybe they've looked more at the Arctic. Because the Arctic, you know, people live there um, and it's very close to a lot of sensor populations. So right. and actually a lot of the modelling centres might be more close to the Arctic than right. the Antarctic. So the people who are generating these models might be more familiar with the Arctic. And I think the sea ice up there, it can certainly get moved around by the wind, but because it's an enclosed basin... Mm. It's affected by a very different way. Yeah. You know, and around Antarctica, uh, if you have wind, like you were mentioning, it can potentially increase the area uh, that's of ice-covered you know, yeah, like, region by quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so the, the seasonal growth of CS in Antarctica is like six to ten times or something. So you... Yeah. It doubles in areas, you know, roughly, yeah. like Antarctica as a, as a thing that you could... Oh, pot- yes. You know, yeah. As a thing that you could potentially walk on doubles in area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is how, how I've heard it phrased before. That's a fun, yeah. It's amazing, actually. So, um, actually, my uh, my husband and I were looking at an old figure of yours last night on Twitter mm. of, uh, of like the, the seasonal cycle of yeah. Arctic and Antarctic sea ice, and, yeah. and he said he'd better use the word heartbeat for that. He said, because, you know, the, the way that the Antarctic, you know, fluctuates, the sea ice fluctuates, really looks like a heartbeat because it's this, this pulse. Yeah, um, it certainly you know, does. talk about the... When you plot yeah, it that way. <laughs> side by side. When yeah. you plot it that way, yeah, side by side. 
and you know I, did, I played with the frame rate just a little bit and it does kind of look like a, yeah. a heart rate yeah. at, at a certain frame rate so yeah so it's quite yeah it's quite fun heartbeat of the planet and you can see that sort of thing in uh, carbon fluxes you know like yeah. atmosphere ocean or ocean atmosphere carbon fluxes you could yeah. make the same kind of argument or even the temperature and salinity you know there's lots of different fields you can plot in that same kind of way to get yeah. a, a sense of um, the that seasonal cycle and the regularity of it and the, yeah. how it repeats. And, the carbon flux one is really fun as well, obviously, because that is actually a living system that's, yeah. that's causing that kind of seasonal cycle in carbon. So it's that one's really cool because it really is like the heartbeat of, of the Earth. Breathing, it's the lungs, yeah. right? It's so the, it, the planet breathe different components of the planet breathing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the carbon one's particularly cool. It is cool, yeah. Uh, it sounds like that's been a fun problem to work on. Yeah. If you thought about Polinias at all? I really, I, I like Polinias a bit. Yeah. yeah kinda, I've been really excited by the return of this Polinia, of the uh, Weddell Sea Polinia yeah. over the past couple of years. And yeah, I, I'd love sorry. to talk about that. Do you want to tell the story? Because uh, I don't think we've talked about it on here yeah. before. I mean, I don't know how, how well I know the story, to be honest, because, you know, we it's it very together, easy to yeah. get bogged in, you know, the, the climate, you know, mm. averages and things. But, um, yeah, so in the, so the, the Weddell Sea, so yeah. just kind of, if you go from the Antarctic Peninsula and kind of east. So back in the 70s and 80s, late 70s there was a few mm -hmm. years when we had this this polynia which is an open area of, yeah. of sea ice and i understand it was around the time when the satellites first went up and people first started taking satellite images yeah. of antarctica and like you were saying there are these it's enormous cool. gigantic you know holes and when i say gig well one big hole right i mean yeah. i'm sure there were smaller ones but there was certainly one no, standout yeah, enormous cool. one that um uh, you know, it was very visible on that kind of Antarctic scale. Yeah. It really stood out. And it, it showed up for a couple of years, right? Yeah. And I mean, then... it's, it's almost the size of these, you know, if you if you look at the Ross Sea or the Weddell Sea, it's almost that size. It's mm. just a bit further out, but, it, you know, it's, it's, it's big. Is um, it as big as the UK? I forget if it's as big as the UK. I think or, so. Yeah, I, I think... should have. I want to say that it is. We'll look it at it must, I'm sure it must be. Yeah. Because um, if you look at the, you know, the lines on Antarctica, how far things are apart, um, then it's... It's big. Yeah, I think that's right. We can look it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, but yeah, so this this had happened in the in the late nineteen seventies, and you know, those people have written about it and kind of how it, what caused it and its implications. Um, and like we were saying earlier, where you've got these areas of, of open water, that's kind of really key for affecting the circulation. Yeah. Um, and then it it wasn't around for a long time, and actually, it was it was just then when I started away. again. Yeah. Um, then they went so away. And there were no holes for decades. Yeah. They just went away. There just uh, were no giant polinias. So uh, there was this whole thing about you know the weather people and you and what's what's happened to it, and was it yeah. just luck that we you know we happened to see that we needed something like here? Yeah. There was the question about yeah is that a cycle? Is it something that comes and goes? Yeah. You know, do we have polinias for some years or decades, and then not for a few decades, or did we just catch the tail end? Uh, because the climate's changing, did we just catch the tail end of when the Southern Ocean forms Polinias? Uh, yeah. Right? And I think people maybe had a notion that, oh, we probably won't see that again. Yeah. That was one of the ideas out there. I don't think anybody knew, but that was one of the hypotheses out yeah, there anyway. It was done. So they came back. So they came back, yeah. So actually it was, it was you know, just when I started. And, mm. and actually it was, so it looked quite different to, to the one of, of the 70s. So it was, um, I think it was in the sl slightly further east, maybe. I yeah, I need to look at my map, but it was, and it was kind of slightly smaller, um, and sure lived, so, you know, 2016, everyone said, oh, well, you know, there's this Polinia again, and then the, the following season, again, we, we had it, um, but it was kind of, it was growing again, so this season is going to be very exciting. It um, is, is it going to come back? Uh, is it, yeah, is it going to be back <laughs> in, in style? Um, but yeah, so it's, and you, and you can really kind of see, it. and even when it, so you have this, this hole in the sea ice, and obviously when the sea ice then starts to melt back again when, when the spring comes, um, you then get this massive gap in the sea ice, mm -hmm. so you 
kind of get this as the as the polynya kind of the ice melts back to where the edge of the west polynya is so it ends up being kind of a curvy hole in the edge of the sea ice yeah that's it right kind of opens up the open ocean i don't think anybody uh, really has pinned down you know, the complexities of this or why they used to exist and no. there's um, a possible element of vertical convection yeah right? so it sits there's... over this the more drives mm-hmm. in which is this kind of higher area of, yeah. of kind of yeah the, the bathymetry so the underground mountains essentially mm-hmm. so uh yes yeah, so it sits over the the more drives this idea that yeah you something to do with the the ocean kind of structure over, yeah. over more drives but it's... that's right yeah i think the idea is that more drives could encourage mixing possibly yeah and by encouraging mixing it's bringing up warm water from below from the depths yeah and you know generally warming the uh, sea surface temperatures and discouraging sea ice formation yeah. that's one idea yeah um and then there's also an idea just about very intense i saw a talk actually at egu i don't i have to look up who it was i'm afraid i've forgotten off the top of my head my apologies that um, there were some uh, kind of localized events of very strong heat loss okay. from the sea surface yeah uh, that kind of preceded you know, when the polinias first started to show up which is yeah. kind of interesting um so you know, I, I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows. Yeah. There, there weren't really. There was one Argo profile that was kind of nearby-ish, okay. not at, not at the time of the formation of the Polynia, but it was kind of nearby. And like you'd expect, they saw that uh, really weak stratification, right? Like the temperature, yeah, the, <clears throat> the density, very constant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one way we could test the mod rise theory is, uh, you know, the hypothesis is we could go down there and smash mod rise. We just flatten it out. <laughs> and we can see, you know, if we're yeah. going to get the Polynias back or not. Um, Maybe it's safer to do that in the model, model, model yeah. world first, you know, rather than, yeah, <laughs> rather so than that. Been, well, I, the thing is, though, I guess, so it's quite um, difficult to get these planes in, in models. I mean, definitely. I don't know how much people have done uh, in, in the smaller scale. I guess, well, in, in a climate model, you don't really get them, but yeah. I found it's super model. easy to get planes okay, right. in my, my uh, okay, right. models, well, you know. I'll step like then. Yeah, yeah. okay, so <laughs> I should cover it in a climate model, a couple of climate models. You don't really get them. You don't okay, get them in a couple of so climate much. models. Oh, I didn't know. I don't think. No? Okay, yeah. Well, definitely mm. some you only get them as you move to higher resolution. Again, I'll have to look that up now. Okay, yeah, I'm, that's interesting. I'm off my, off my area. I know that climate models sometimes have a hard time forming bottom water. And they yes. have a hard time getting the bottom water off the shelf. Yeah. And I, I had heard the idea that in re- sort of in response to that, that... Um, that changes the ocean stratification and encourages convection somehow, encourages this deep convection. I yeah. don't know all the details of the argument, and I really maybe should uh, look it up before I start talking in, about it yeah. too, too much <laughs> like in detail. Blinders, yeah. But this is, a, this is a casual podcast, so we're just supposed okay, to, you know, this is just... we can we, go and Google it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or just give us some time to, you know, look things up properly yeah, yeah, is yeah. One, one way that I like to think about it. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we know more about how to look stuff up than we necessarily know off the top of our heads. Yeah. Do you think that's fair? Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we know how to like engage with the literature and yeah. find like, the right person to ask and yeah. find the like. And we have our very narrow areas of expertise that we get, you know, entrenched in. Um, but the 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 it's not like you know if you're working in this field, it's not like you know everything about everything. You have a very narrow kind of scope that you're focused yeah. on. And how, part of the skill is you know knowing when to. When to stop and go, I'll go and look that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we're about there. We're yeah, about yeah, at this scale. Yeah. We're like, well, let's go, let's, let's not get too deep into that discussion and just look it up. But in any case, there are lots of interesting physical theories out there about you know, why do you get polinias. Um, I got them a lot in my models, and yeah, they were okay. really a headache and they're really a problem um, yeah. because I didn't want them. Okay. Because they would just get worse and worse every season. They would oh, just yeah, get bigger okay. and bigger and bigger. And 
in some of my model runs, I would get mixed layers. My, I have this hilarious plot that I've saved somewhere that's a mixed layer depth plot that has just turned into a bathymetry plot. Okay. Because the, oh, mix, no. <laughs> because the mixed layer the is bit. the entire ocean everywhere, and the yeah. whole thing is just mixed from top to bottom, and that's it's more or less, you know, that, that's a... Obviously, this was right before the model crashed, right? This is a, yeah. a super unstable situation where all of your density surfaces are nearly vertical, and uh, there's tons of you know instabilities happening all over yeah, the place, great. and it's kind of crazy. And your ACC speeds up to you know 400 sphere drops or something insane Good like work. that before, and you know, yeah. maybe more like 300 before so it's quite it blew fun up. To you know? make a model do you then. Yeah, torture a model and see yeah, yeah. You know, what, <laughs> what really can they produce it. out of this? Yeah, yeah. Um, but sometimes that's, that can throw up some interesting things that you can you can learn something from them, and sometimes it's just you know the model's gone crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's never like this again, except for humor. So, like you said, you've kind of got these two communities here at Bass. You know, you've got the ocean folks and the atmosphere folks. Yeah. Uh, does that mean you have two bosses? Do you have? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's actually quite funny because uh, um, I think everyone always thinks that I'm I'm in the other team. So mm. people from both teams are kind of like you know don't really know which group I'm in. So people all That's so I think perfect. officially. Like on paper, I'm I'm atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but because I'm working mostly at the moment in oceanography, I'm kind of at the moment. I have a desk in, in the oceanography side of the building, and then you know they're, they're the other sides of this building. So it's like a five minute walk if I want to go and yeah. talk to my yeah. boss in in atmospheres. Um. So, uh, yeah, it's it's quite funny. But actually, it just means I end up going to both lots of team meetings. So I end up listening to all the thrilling. Uh, Thrilling admin mm. twice, so so doubles your meeting. I've attendance. probably done this the wrong way around, um, <laughs> but but you know it's nice actually. You, you sometimes get quite different perspectives on things, um, but yeah, because CI sits in the middle, so you know there isn't there isn't a CI group about. Yeah, and so I've actually been kind of trying to get I and others have been trying to get people to talk to each other who do CIs because there's yeah obviously people running ocean models and, and doing ocean are interested in CI. Atmospheric people are really interested in CIs, both for how it affects the atmosphere on a large scale, like I was saying before, and also kind of how it affects the chemistry and, and kind of flux of things from the ocean to the atmosphere. And then you've got all the ecosystems people who are, are again, fascinated by, you know, how the, the sea ice really affects what, what ecosystems mm -hmm. they get. So there's all these people who are, are really working on things, but, you know, we're looking on different spatial scales, different time scales. Mm -hmm. um, all the paleo people are well and looking at reproducing sea ice in, in the past. So yeah. um, It's unique to have all that under one roof. Yeah. And it's one of the and it's, things that's nice about working here. It's a really cool opportunity in a way, but then it's actually how you, how you bring those conversations together and how you, you know, what cool problems we can solve yeah. through, through virtue of having that, that group that's... You know, we're trying to work out what what cool stuff we can do. Um, but yeah, it's fun. Interdisciplinary you stuff. Talk to loads of different people. <laughs> like, ah, oh, I've just learned about sea ice and ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, for me, that would be like, uh, well, great. How do I how do I keep all this in my head? Like, how do yeah. I how do I keep all this from just falling out of my well, brain? Like, yeah, you know? it's hard enough sometimes to keep your own stuff in your head, let alone let alone other people's. So. Yeah. Because there's loads of stuff where I feel like, oh, I've heard about that, but I can't remember exactly how it works, but I've heard about that, yeah. and at least I know who to go ask about, like, could you remind me again about how yes. that works? Yeah, or who, who to send people to, you know. That's helpful. Ask a question, go, go that way. Go that way. This corridor. Yeah. Yeah, this is the people, oh yeah, so speaking of the corridor, we share a corridor, we're like, yes, you're just a right. couple doors down. Five meters away. So yeah. this is the folks with whom I share a corridor series, in yeah, yeah. Of it, which I should start, and I should just get everybody in oh, yeah, the corridor see, here. Emma was last yeah. time, right? So uh, a couple, a couple of times ago, time yeah. Here, so, uh, trying to branch out and get more Cambridge folks as well. And, uh, oh yeah, great. Yeah, so that it's not just um, only bass oceanographers and adjacent <laughs> yeah. yeah trying to branch out a little um, bit what's um i want to ask you a question that i stole from another podcast okay. and i always like to say that i stole it 
um, from Ologies, which is a nice podcast about different kind of you know okay. psychology, biology, that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, so it's uh, the question is there's two of them. There's you know what's something you love about your job, but also what's something you hate about it. So Ooh. you can kind of give that that contrast because we're obviously you know we're doing this we're because we're passionate, we're interested in the subject, and we want to do it. But yeah. not everything is all roses. You know, there's some things that's really yeah. frustrating about the job. Yeah. Um, I'm going to... I could go on for a long time, but um, maybe I'll pick the same same thing that I love and hate, if that's all right. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I love, like I was just saying, that it's that's interdisciplinary and it's this, this huge problem. And, you know, climate science is this, this huge area and there's there's always more to learn and explore. You know, there's people looking at all these intricacies and mm-hmm. and it's it's really cool that it's, it's such an interconnected area. Uh, but I hate it because uh, it, it's really difficult actually to, to find something to, to focus on. And, and I guess my the way that my brain works is I naturally kind of that I find that quite hard. I mean, I imagine most people find that quite hard. But to kind of handle these big things, and so sometimes you're like, I wish I had a confined, defined problem. Yes. And you know, I could, yeah. I could, you know, I could be given a task for this week, and I'd go away, you know, look up, find this data, process it this way, you know, do it. And you do it, and, and it's done, and you go on to the next task. And, you know, academia is completely, you know, you, you're, there's always something else yeah. you can do. And, I, again, I guess it's, I always, often think this, and I think, oh, is it like that in every field? But I think it's probably particularly true that um, it's, it's, it's very Work difficult to, uh, to just stick and, and get get a task done and then and then go on to a new one because I think yeah, you know I want right. I want things to be finished and nice and yeah um, I like that answer that's I a really a good story. answer <laughs> because to get at the impact stuff that you were excited about you know yeah. the E13 eruption and dealing with that yeah you know, to get to that kind of excitement you have to deal with the whole climate system you know yeah. as a whole thing as a single entity and it's horribly complicated and interdisciplinary like you mentioned so there's something exciting about going in that direction but it's also uh, you you like the satisfaction of having a simple model and like you said a super well defined uh, problem with clear boundaries on it yeah. and clear edges of yeah. like well I don't have to think about the sea ice because I'm just thinking about you know X or I'm just yeah. thinking about uh, or you don't have to think about um, the uh, you know, carbon cycle for a particular kind of problem because you're just looking at the physics of the problem yeah. for example whereas if you're looking at the real climate system nope can't do you that you need, everything. You, need, you need everything you need the climate system um, so, you know, I, I see that tension between, you know, wanting to have impactful work that relates to the whole climate system and on the other side, wanting to go back to simple models, you know, idealized models. Yeah. I think I was, I was so happy, uh, when I was doing my math masters because we were just doing, it was a variant of the Lorenz equations Oh yeah. and we yeah. just had a, we, we were doing mm-hmm. like, how do you control the chaotic behavior of the Lorenz yeah. equations? What kind of controllers can you put on there? It's so satisfying. It yeah. was very satisfying, yes, because it was super well-defined. Yeah. You know, it was mathematically just a well-posed kind of question. Yeah. I didn't have to think about anything else except that mathematical system. Yeah. You know, I, I learned some geometrical methods and stuff for it, yeah. but other than just like learning a couple of new techniques, I didn't have to. I was happy, but I, it was also pretty isolated because nobody cares about, I mean, that's not... Yeah. You know, it's kind of fun to think about, but it's not uh, going to be climate relevant necessarily. You yeah, know, it's not certainly not not directly. You yeah. have to engage with quite a lot to how that gets to yeah, exactly how, that, how you bridge the gap. So. so there's another nice tension that we've highlighted, right, between wanting that that impact 
but also craving simple systems that you can really sink your teeth into yeah. and feel satisfied about. Oh my gosh, I really relate to that really, yeah. uh, really hard. <laughs> I, I imagine that, uh, you know, you often feel like, oh, you know, everyone seems to cope with these really big, complicated systems, but I think it's, it's probably true for a lot of people that this this tension is kind of quite quite difficult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, publishing as well, you want, you want to have a story and you want to have a... But then you also have to have impact, so you have to... You have to kind of wrap it up and make it kind of a neat, neat parcel, and, and yeah. science is not a neat parcel. So no, certainly not. Um, at least not now. Well, how are you feeling? Is there anything else you want to talk about? Not necessarily anything else you want to ask. Probably. Well, it's easy to go on and on, but I yeah, like I like yeah, to yeah. be, and I, I like that. I think it's good when I say on and on. I don't mean that in, <laughs> in a disparaging way. Yeah. yeah I mean, like playing. that's actually good. Yeah. You know, just people talking conversations. That's yeah. a, a very good thing. It's very um, nice. Yeah. But I want to be conscious of time and people, yeah. you know, for this other, um, and I've also got a lunch thing to go to, so it's yes. a bit, it's a bit my, I'm also, no, that's I'm, fine, I think, you know. I'm happy to, happy, yeah, cool, well thanks very much, no worries, thanks Do- for inviting me, Dr. Okay. Holmes, yeah, thank you, <laughs> that was yeah. fun, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll turn that, there you oh. have it, my conversation with Dr. Caroline Holmes, I hope you enjoyed it, uh, thanks again to Dr. Holmes for stopping by and for her time, you can find Dr. Holmes at C. Holmes Climate on Twitter, and you can find her Bass profile as well. And by Bass, I mean the British Antarctic Survey, uh, BAS. Follow us at Climate SciPod on Twitter for new episodes. I'll post updates there and uh, whatever else kind of comes up. And follow us on uh, via Anchor or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, many different platforms you know find us wherever you get podcasts and if we're not there let me know and i'll bother anchor and try to get them to put the podcast on uh on your favorite favorite platform or whatever you tend to listen to podcasts on yeah okay so that's that's it that's for me i'm just gonna let it play out um feeling a little tired from the heat so i don't have a lot of uh amazing stuff to say not that i necessarily usually have amazing stuff to say but uh just just worn out the heat saps your energy right it just drains you and it just uh makes you want to lay around and try to cool off all right have a good one talk to you later bye